Hey there, and welcome to another episode of The Bible. Wait, what? Yes, this is the podcast that unravels the mysteries of the Bible's most perplexing, puzzling, and thought-provoking passages. My name is Rowan, and each session I'm joined by a member of our team at C3 Church, Camden, Picton, and Thoreau, as they quiz me on some of the more complicated, confusing, challenging, and even confronting passages that we read in our weekly Bible reading plan. understand that reading the Bible can be a challenging and perplexing experience. Many people just don't know where to start, they get confused, and so they give up. Well, that's why this podcast exists, to equip you with the tools and the knowledge to explore the richness and depth of the Bible for yourself. So grab your Bible, take a deep breath, and join us as we explore this week's passages. To learn more about us or to get in touch with us at C3 Church Camden, Picton and Thoreau, visit any of our three locations' websites. That's c3camden.church, c3picton.church and c3thoreau.church. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube just by searching for any of our locations' names. So without any further delay, let's dive into today's conversation. Hello and welcome to the Bible. Wait, what? Hey, everybody, we're back. We're back. My name's Jeannie. Of course, I'm sitting here with the most excellent Pastor Rowan, who has sort of an unending knowledge about the Bible. Oh no, well, there's an unending thing amount of things to know. I don't know everything there is to know. And the last time we sat down together, I believe we spoke for a long time. Yeah, it was. We misbehaved. We misbehaved. We, we spoke for too long. And so today I'm actually setting a stopwatch. You've got a stopwatch. Okay, yep. Jeannie. So good, it, good. it's going to go mad and mental at me. And we won't play funny sounds too much today oh, either. But that was really That fun. was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so today's topic is part of the Father series, right? Yep, and yep. Uh, today it's actually glorious. Yep, the Father is glorious. The Father is glorious. And I must admit I've been struggling with this because okay. I have no idea really what glory is. Yeah. The idea yeah. that God is glory, glory. that we give mm. him glory, mm-hmm. that our prayers are glory to him. No, that's probably not the correct uh, way of saying it. not the right word for that, but it's, it is a word that's used in lots of different contexts, isn't it? So it's hundreds of times in the Bible. Yeah. It's mentioned this verse after verse yeah. about God's glory. Yep. And I was reading all these chapters. I just thought, I don't actually know. I can't pin yeah. it down. What yeah. is the glory of God? Yeah, well, that's that's probably because it is such a vast concept that gets used all over the place. But my understanding at its basic level, uh, especially in the Hebrew Bible, maybe we can have a look in a moment at what the Greek word is because I can't remember off the top of my head. But in the Hebrew Bible, the, the word is, uh, well, the English version of the word is K-A-B-O-D, um, uh, or, or see, that would be probably be the closest to it, but it's actually kavod. Kavod? Kavod. I'm going to say it with Kavod. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. No. I'll start coughing. No, you'll start coughing. Kavod. But uh, yes, so, or Kavod, uh, often the V and the v, the v and the V are interchangeable in Hebrew. Um, there's only one letter for them in the Hebrew. But what, um, what it actually means, it comes, it derives itself from the word for heaviness or weight. If something, you pick something up and it's weighty, your Bible has a Kavod about it on sitting on the desk there. It's weighty. And so it has this sense of, of pressure, downward pressure. And that's actually the root 
well, that's actually the meaning of the word that has been used to describe God's glory. So when God manifests his glory, it is actually weighty. It has a heaviness about it. It's something you can tangibly experience and feel, if you like. That's that's the basic meaning of the word. And then if you know that, it can kind of make it, helps you to translate the understanding and implications of that when you see it. Um, in the st- in the text. Well, that makes me think it's kind of negative. I think that yeah. a heavy feeling is a negative feeling. Yes, so I'm yeah, probably we, not thinking that's right. No, no, that's true. That when we say we feel heavy, it does tend to carry with us a, a sadness feeling. You know, we might say we're heavy with emotion or with a heavy heart. So I don't think uh, I don't think that's the case. I think we need to let the text interpret itself as we read it, but recognize it doesn't mean necessarily that, it, that the weightiness is a bad thing. I mean, your Bible's not a bad thing; it's just a heavy thing. And so <laughs> it's a brick. W- it's a brick. <laughs> so we've taken the word and then we've used that in our English language. So, you know, we don't really have a heavy heart, but we've we've arrested the word for weightiness and used it to say our heavy heart when we feel like we're sad or we're grieving. Um, and so we probably need to just understand that as they interpret the word heaviness, weightiness in the Hebrew Bible, they're doing it with that understanding, but maybe it's arriving at different meanings as we read the text. So it's it's really, I think the main sense is that God's God is present you think about something, if you can feel weight, you can feel the presence of something. You, if you can feel it on you, you know it's there. If you, you're carrying a load. And so, um, in other words, it's not that God is somehow distant and disconnected, but that he, when his glory manifests, you feel his presence. When you say it in terms of presence, and I think of somebody's heaviness, I suppose, or their, I guess their gravitas. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, that, like that would that. be like a word. If, where, where do you think that word comes from? Think about it. Gravity. Gravity, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So there yes. you go. It's the same same meaning coming through there yeah. in the etymology of the word. So yeah. it's like when somebody walks in the room, there's a, a weightiness or a heaviness to them. Like yes. And you know they're an important person. Like that's right. It could be a positive thing or a negative thing, couldn't it? You could have a person yeah. walk into the room who, yeah, that's that's how I think you need to view it. It's, it's that tangible presence of someone in the room. So in terms of God's glory, it's like God's tangible presence, like his, his spirit in a sense. Are we talking about his character? the weight of his character, the weight of his spirit, the importance and significance yeah. of his character. Yeah, you get inside. That's it. I think it's all yeah. of the, it's when he shows up, his character shows up. You know, everything he is is in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then we think of it and when then we start to think of his character, we start to think of his his beauty and he, in his creation and uh, his love for yeah. people. So yeah. this is how I'm imagining God's glory. It's all of these things encompassing. Yeah. So it has all those, um, wonderful connotations of God's character, his love and his creativity and all that too. I think we also need to add to it the sense that it also carries his holiness, you know, his holiness. holiness. And then, uh, you know, we've talked about this a few times on the podcast. One of my favorite Bible project podcast videos is right from the early ones, the one on holiness that derives it as the sun. And it says that God's holiness is, is, uh, powerful and good and dangerous at the same time. And so there is a sense when God's uh, Kabod shows up, that there is a holiness about that. There is something, there's an awe and a wonder. There's a there's a sense in which our hearts need to be uh, prepared to encounter that glory. Um, otherwise, um, we won't be able to stand up in that presence, in that glory. So we should have an awe and a wonder and it should, you know, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, those who have a clean hands and a pure heart. If we want to come into and experience the fullness of that glory in a way that, that is good for us, rather than um, is dangerous to us, it will require uh, some conditioning and preparation of our heart. Okay. And the easiest sort of way for me to see or 
picture God's glory is obviously that morning sunrise. That's a great one. Often yeah. people say this. Yeah, yeah a, lot, a lot of people say they do feel connected to God mm. in the early mornings, although I prefer to sleep in. <laughs> yeah, but on the occasion <laughs> that I am up and you walk out and you see this beautiful sunrise and you're struck, the, the awe, and you're wondering about creation. Yeah. It's in those moments when you do recognise that there's some, well, the evidence in Psalm Psalm 14, is it? No, Psalm 19, sorry. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. skies proclaim yep. the work of his hands. This is the first Bible verse I learned. Is day that right? Out, yeah, day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they proclaim knowledge. Oh, there is no good. speech, no voice where they're... I can't remember keep the rest going, now. Keep going. Oh no, I, I know the verse, but I don't memorize that one. I would, it's not one of my memorized. first one I learned when I was five years old. Amazing. And the heavens go. declare the glory of God. And so it's like we are meant to see God's glory in everything, in all his creation, yeah. uh, yes. his one, uh, His wonder, yes. his magnificence, his love and his splendor. His, yep. And and we're going to get to this later on um, that we are, we know that we are in, created in his image. Yes. So we reflect his glory. Yes. Right? Yep. Yeah. But then later on the ultimate example of his glory is Christ. Mm-hmm. Is, is yep. that the yes, right Yes, that's way to right. John, John says that in his gospel. Now, I think that's okay, where we're, we're going to go there. Yeah, we'll go there. Yeah. So let's hold it for, until we get there. Yeah. All right. Okay. So I'm ready to go into these chapters. All right. Let's do it. So we're going to start off today with Exodus 14. And we actually discussed this the last time we met. Which is like two days ago two days for ago, us. Yes. But it's about... Oh, three or four weeks, weeks ago. couple of weeks in between this podcast. So I can, re- uh, if you want to go back to for a deep dive, yeah. and a seriously deep dive. That was a, I think Exodus 14 was probably um, well over an hour of our conversation. Yeah. Well, yeah. it is one of the greatest events yeah. in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a real turning point for the Israelites. And it is actually the first time that God, the word glory it is. is actually written. Yep. Uh, it is in verses uh, 14, uh, sorry, and sorry, verses 17, chapter 17. 14 verse 17, and it has this hardening of the heart. So go back and listen to that podcast where we discussed yeah, hardening we of the heart, which we? was, yep. hang on, it was the priesthood? It was the royal priesthood, The yes. royal priesthood. Yep, royal yeah, priesthood. Okay. So, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed through the Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. So this is that... Covered that this is the heaviness. Yep. How am I meant to read that in that moment? So, well, let's think about what's happening and then we will be able to see. So God is saying something's going to happen. In some way, he's going to manifest his glory. And as we read on the story, we, we see what that actually is. It's the whole uh, fire and cloud and coming and placing himself between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And then it's the wind blowing back the sea and it's the walking through the Red Sea. So the whole exodus um outworking the whole, the, the tangible um, things that happen that are visible, that they all sense and they all experience and they all see. It's those things that, um, that they're, that's really at the heart of God manifesting his glory. The ultimate being that, that everyone's going to see that and everyone's going to know, Hey, God did that. And we talked about, you know, the difference between Baal Zephon and Zach yes. Ephron and all that. And, and, and so there's a God here. That, yeah, there's a this God This is here. a worship place. Yeah. God has brought them to this place in the wilderness. You should assume that people haven't listened to the long conversation. Yeah. <laughs> He's so. brought them to this place <laughs> in the wilderness, which is uh, Baal Zephon is yes. known to live there, yes. which we decided was actually Zach Ephron. Zach Ephron. Uh, 
this. <laughs> and close enough. <laughs> close enough. <laughs> Call, uh, and this Baal Zephon was lord over the sea. So God has brought them to this place where he is going to display his glory yeah. and magnificence. And so I'm starting to, starting to see this is him sa- uh, saving, rescuing. Yes, that's, so he's that's setting right. That's what's happening here. It's a rescuing. His glory showing his character as rescuer, yep. redeemer. Yep. Would you say that was fair? Yes, that's right. I think that's the, that's what this story is about. It's this rescuing calling for himself, delivering that kind of thing. And so when his glory comes, that's what he does. He delivers those he's chosen and those who willingly rebel against him. Isn't it interesting how the glory, the manifestation of God's, God's glory has positive and negative effects. Yes, it does. Dependent upon yeah. the attitude of those to whom they, who are experiencing it. Yes. Hard hearts, soft yep. hearts. That's right. Glory. Yep. Or fear yes. and death, I yeah. suppose, with the Egyptians. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's an important lesson there as we unpack. This is the first time. Laura first mentioned says, take notice of this. First time this word is mentioned. So, yeah, we're looking at that. We're looking at the fact that God, God's glory can be good or bad. And later on we're going to – well, not today because we're, we're not going there, but I don't think we are anyway. We talked about it in the rest of the Exodus passages is this same glory manifests on the mountain – uh, and the people are afraid because they their hearts afraid. weren't ready. They were they had a hardened heart in that sense. So, so we should not be afraid if our hearts are in the right place and we desire God. We can come to God and experience the goodness of His glory. Yeah, and when you're saying there that we're afraid, um, it reminds me of Romans three twenty three, and it's that verse which you, I'm sure you're familiar with. That For- one I do know. <laughs> <laughs> For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yeah. That's in that verse. That's glorious in that verse. standard. Yeah. And so here God is showing his glory, but we're also realizing the lack of our own glory. Um uh, yes. Well, the lack of what's in us. Yeah, of that's what's right. in us. Yeah, there's the difference in the standard that we have, the the moral character and and uh, you know, things that we have attitudes that we have compared to what what they, what God has. Yeah. It's tricky. It's tricky to read. And you can't, I think when you read a statement like or a verse like Romans 3.23, it seems like a strange one, but it really, you have to go back to the beginning and read the thing to understand how we fall short of God's glory. Well, the first thing I'd do is I'd be putting that scripture in its context, in its chapter. Oh, good. He's then, got it. He's going to yeah. read it. No, well, no actually, oh, no, I'm going to look at the meaning. But, well, you can do that if you want to. Um, I was just going to look at what the he, what the Greek word is. So we get it, the, correct, the Greek translation of the word glory is doxa, the base of 13, oh, what's 1380? The 13, 1380 says a prolonged use of the form doco uh, to have implicated. No, that's not going to help me. The Greek, it would if I studied it. But the glory, as it says, as this is Strong's Concordance, as very apparent in a wide application, literally, figuratively, objectively, or subjectively, the dignity, glorious honor, praise, worship. It's translated as glory 145 times, glorious 10, honor 6. Praise for dignity to and worship one. So I think the the big one there is the word translated glory. And if you look for the next word, it, there's a sense of honor about it, which I think is that weightiness. If, some, if a weighty person's in the room, you treat them with an honor. So I think there is that sense of gravitas. That's probably a really good word. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, my um, <laughs> my MacBook here tells me that glory is high renown or honor won by notable achievements. So in this case, the the crossing of the Red Sea is a notable achievement isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Showing his might and his power yeah. and his control yeah. over the entire earth. That's right. Over yeah. the sea. 
and, and that all things bow down to him. Yep. So anytime God's glory comes, it's going to manifest itself with those kind of values, his, his um, supremacy, if you like, his gravitas. And it should make people want to notice him and turn to him. But it says so many times in these verses, then they will know that I'm yeah, the Lord, but he yeah. does something then, and then they, they will, will know, know that I'm Lord. Yeah. But they still don't. No. And I wonder if <laughs> that's a lack of awareness um, of where we're at. If our hearts aren't tuned to receive God's glory, we may not see it. Now in, in, in the end, God may choose to manifest his glory in a way that we don't have a choice, but I think he's, his open invitation is always to come up to the mountain. You know, this who, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord. There's a there's a presumption there in Psalm, that psalm that we would want to go up the mountain, that we would want to come into God's presence. Hebrews, uh, I think it's 10, uh, talks about how you can, um, you know, you can be in the presence of, we, we be, he's encouraging them. When you come to church, you come to the holy mountain, you come into the glorious presence of God. And he's trying to make them realize that because clearly it would appear they don't realize the gravitas of where they are and the significance of their situation. And many years ago, I heard Dr. Ken Chan, this is going back 30 something years ago, over 30 years ago, he preached a sermon on that passage in Hebrews. And he said, it's, it's kind of like a mouse in the, in the palace of the queen at the time, you know, that a mouse can be running around in the presence of weightiness, in the presence of glory and not even be aware of that. I think there's actually a proverb that says something about the same. He says that, you know, I think it, it's small animals are found in king's palaces and out in the bush. I can't remember which um, which animal is. It might be a mouse or something. But, you know, you can be in the presence of greatness and not aware of it. There's a famous thing you can watch on YouTube of a, a, a concert pianist who's sitting in the subway in New York playing, what, real, not pianist, a, a violinist, world-renowned violist, playing this beautiful piece of literature, a beautiful piece of music, so I'm losing my thought. I was up watching the cricket at four o'clock this morning. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, well, I couldn't help myself. Yeah. But um, they're you know, playing this beautiful piece of music in the subway in New York on a Stradivarius violin. And the night after, he's going to be selling to a sold-out sold out um, audience in the, in the, in the theater. And he's just playing. And over the course of two hours sitting in the, in, or an hour or something playing in the uh, subways, like a couple of people walk past and throw a bit of money in. Why? They were in the presence of greatness, but they were unaware of it. And I think the invitation for us is to be aware of God's glory. And when we are aware of it and looking for God and expecting him to come, he will come and manifest himself in that way. Now, I wonder if people listening to that person in the subway, you said, Yes, yeah, you can watch if, it. Yeah, yeah. violinist in subway. I have way. actually Fascinating. heard this. Yeah. Yes, but if yeah. they had stopped, and they had listened, and they'd thought about it, they probably would have noticed. Maybe they would have noticed the glorious talent yes. that was in yes. front of them. Yes, but but their environment led They're them distracted. to think it was just an ordinary basket yeah. as well. So, yeah. So we can speaking back. It's fascinating. There's one little picture yeah. where a child walks up with its mum, I think, and the child walks up takes it, you know, stands there for a little while. And then the mum comes and the parent comes and takes the child away. Oh, right. Okay. There's got to be a lesson in that yeah. somewhere. <laughs> Tell them back. Yeah. Yes. Well, speaking, going back to my analogy of the uh, sunset, it's like you can either wake up and see the beauty there is, or you can be so distracted yes. with your life and what you have to do. And so yeah. you're missing the moment. And so I think we can, along these lines, these simple lines, we can miss the glory of God. Yes. That's what you're saying. Yes, we, I think so. We miss the relationship with him. Yeah. We miss everything. Now, clearly in this moment in Exodus, no one misses, no one's missing the experience of the glory, but their response even with the experience is still up to interpretation based on their heart. But yes, I think God is not manifesting in Exodus experiences all the time. He comes subtly and gently. You know, He holds out his hand. He wants to invite us into his presence. 
Yes, but this is not subtle or gentle. No, this this one's this not. Is, no, this there is, are plenty of other times in the Old Testament where it is too. I think it's just a constant invitation into His presence. Yeah, but and just thinking in your life, there are sometimes when God has to move in a big way. Yes, to get your attention. Yeah, uh, and to pull you out of certain circumstances and. Uh, and other times he's very gentle. Yes, that's right. I yeah. think so too. This is yeah. just this big moment. This is a big where he's moment. setting up. He's setting up his character mm. for the entire scriptures. Yep. yep, that's right. He is the God, a glorious God, that has his multiple, um, not not multiple personalities, multiple aspects to yes, his personality, yes. character traits. Yep, character traits, and that's what he's showing us his character here. And we went when we went through the last podcast, we were able to see how many attributes of God's character we learn in yeah. these first few chapters. Yeah, that's right. Yep, that's right. Exodus. That might have been one where God showed up and really said, well done with your revelation, Jeannie. I think I remember that. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, he did show up yeah. in a big way that day. That day. Yes. Yeah, what, that's great. What were you going to say? No, nothing else. Nope. What else have you got in your notes? I've got, actually, I didn't write notes on this because we went through this we chapter did Exodus extensively. extensively. But yep. I do notice that... I go tend to go in circles about the glory of God. Mm-hmm. I learn one part and then it, I go back and I learn other parts. Um, I think it's this constant evolving uh, idea of what God's glory is. Yeah. But, but I think that's because the more I read, the more I learn about who he is. Yes. And I'm able to see that glory that in greater ways and yeah. to recognize it in small moments. Uh, yes. You know, when I look at an Good ant, thought. that's yeah. God's glory. Yeah. Uh, oh, reflected totally. there. Oh, like yeah. I see it. Uh, I love dabbling in watching physics videos and all that sort of stuff. So and, and astrophysics and all sorts of stuff. So I see it on the big and the incredibly small, and I'm just blown away by it. Yeah, yeah. and we see it in each other too. Yes, when people do extraordinary things, mm. uh, when God really moves in their heart. That should be how we should. You know, you mentioned the word "reflect His glory" before. That's exactly what yeah. it should look like. Yeah, it's not that we carry that. Gravitas ourselves, but we carry the presence of the one who has it, and it should reflect out of us to uh, to the world around us. Yeah, because we were created for relationship with Him. Yep. He imparted His image yep. into us. Yep. Therefore, one should think He put His glory within us. But we are now a sh- we are shadows yes. of His glory. Yeah, this creation is is in a way a shadow of His glory. I, I think how we have tarnished it. We've tarnished yes, we've ourselves, tarnished and we've tarnished yeah. His world. I think that the, the New Testament writers, especially Paul, would want you to see that your sinful nature has tarnished it. But there is actually right now, as a follower of Jesus, filled with the Spirit of God, there is a deposit of that glory. That glory is in you. He says, you have this treasure. This, he would, you know, It's another word for glory. You have this glory within this fragile jar of clay. And he's trying to constantly call them to go, come on, this is in you. If you're a follower of Christ, he has deposited this into you. You're able to live out this in a righteous way, which, which a righteous simply means right relationship with God and right relationship with one another. That should be how we should be living out God's glory. And so he's trying to urge you to realize, yeah, it looks fragile, but you've got it inside you. God's glory, God's presence. John said, probably doing it. I don't think we're going there in John, but Jesus says, the father and I come and live in you. You know, his presence is in us. And as his presence is in us, Jesus being the perfect example the perfect embodiment of God's glory. He's fully God and fully yep. human. So God and God's image together, that right? Yep, yeah, yep, yep, yeah, yep. Joined in yep. one. And when we become more like him, his glory is increased within us. Yes. And the more we develop along our faith, 
the more glory we reflect. Yes, that's the right. We, the we, more we yeah. become, he, you know, John the, the Baptist we says, like we become Christ. less, he becomes greater yes. in us. Yes, that's right. These are huge concepts. These right? are massive <laughs> concepts. And these are, these are themes that we are carrying forward. Yes, because the glory of God um, in the Old Testament is often quite corporate and quite large. But in the New Testament, the, the perspective is that it's manifest in Jesus and then ultimately in his followers and then back out to the world through his people. Yep. So, yes, that is, um, there is a sense in which it is quite, at least at some point, we have to experience that glory personally within us. And it's love, right? Glory is well, love. Well, all those, remember we said all the attitudes of God, I think, yeah. are manifest in his glory. And different manifestations may, uh, ex- we may experience different aspects of that. I've been in glorious meetings in church services over the years where all you sense is the love of the Father. You know, other times you might have the glorious presence of God and there might be an awe or a wonder about it. Or even I've been in meetings where there's just a sense of uh, conviction, a deep conviction to repent of sin. So when he comes, he will manifest, I guess, whatever he wants to do in that moment or what we need of him. So much to talk about. Yeah. Should we move on to the next chapter? All right. Where are we going next? Psalm 126. Psalm 126. Psalm 126 is another of these pilgrims ascending. It's an ascent song. Ascent song, yep. Yeah. Do you know, I stupidly thought that King David wrote all the Psalms. Isn't that embarrassing? Uh, I, no, they're well, <laughs> not embarrassing. I'm and I sure. thought they were all written at the same time period, but they're uh, actually yes. written hundreds of years apart. Yeah. Right? Well, actually, I want to. They're written over a long period of time and then they're collated together in the Second Temple period to tell a story in themselves. So I wanted to actually pick up on that because last time, or well, what previous time we did a Zoom, and you asked me about how can it be a psalm of ascent if David's written it. Yeah. And there was no temple. Yes. And I just was fluffing around, not thinking about it. That night I was reflecting on that and going, and it occurred to me, I don't know why I didn't think of this at the time. It's exactly what you just said. These psalms were collated together much later on. And so it was probably a psalm of David that they brought into, form up the psalms of ascent, which were written some, you know, 300 years after David. So, um, yeah, it doesn't have to be a Psalm of David. Even though it's a Psalm of David, it could still be used in the Songs of Ascent, even though there was no temple at the time. So, yeah, all these Psalms were collated and there's a, there's a story. They're actually, the five books are all telling stories. Um, there's a story within the story of the Book of Psalms. And could it also be when people say a Psalm of David, it might not be a Psalm written by David. It's it, a Psalm telling about David. It, I, I, it could be. I think there's a school of thought that says sometimes... These are when it says Psalm of David or whatever, it's the, after the tradition of David. So the kind of style of David or the Proverbs of Solomon might not mean Solomon wrote them all. It's just in the in the tradition of Solomon's Proverbs. So I think that, but I, my guess is that the scholars would think that if it says the Psalm of David, it was probably composed by David, I think, but I don't know 100%. All right. Okay. And so they're poetry and song, yes. ultimately. Yeah. So I'm not going to sing this. <laughs> <laughs> Put the music on put and you can sing it. Put the music and I'll sing it. <laughs> All right. So the bit, this is a, this is about a joyful return to Zion after captivity in Babylon. Yeah. Basically. 
All right, so verse 1. When the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter and we sang for joy. And the other nations said, what amazing things God, the, sorry, the Lord has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the desert. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. There's no word of glory there. There's no there. word of glory in this one. But I think the principle is that it was God's, I mean, we're not going to find glory in every passage, Jeannie. That's not how the, this Bible plan works. We can't, we can't possibly put them together. I'm trying to give some consistency to it. I, I think that there is, um, there is a sense in this story that God has, he got, it's God's glory manifest that has actually taken them out of exile and returned them. And that's why there's such joy and gladness. What I would, I'm looking at what I would have picked up on the time when I wrote the Bible plan is verse three. Oh, sorry, it's, ver it's verse two. They were filled with laughter and the other nations said, what amazing things Yahweh has done for them. Yes, Yahweh has done amazing things for us. So that echoes Exodus 14 to me. Yeah, it does. When I first read it, I thought, oh, are they talking about uh, the Exodus here? Well, they're and talking about I, the new Exodus, the actually. The new Exodus. That's correct. Yes. yes. They, they saw the return from exile as a second Exodus. And it really is, if you, if you know the history of it, that's exactly what it is. They were in bondage, they were in slavery, you know, they were in Babylon without hope and they had to return and, and they were, they were set free by Cyrus. Cyrus and, you know, the Babylonians are pitted against Egypt all the time. They're often compared in scripture. So this is a, this is a new exodus and a new manifestation of God's glory that's filling them with laughter and joy. Yeah. And it does give that human moment when you go back and you read one Kings and things and the return of them. Is it in one king, one king, kings, one, two kings, Nehemiah, uh, all no, those ones? Uh, one, it, it, well, the return is, the return is um, mainly Ezra and Nehemiah. It's alluded to at the end of Second Chronicles, I think. Second it talks Chronicles, about it, okay. It talks see. about it. It alludes to it starting there, but. Ignore the kings. It, might be, it might be at the end of Second Kings. <laughs> no. I think there's. Well, right you learn the about end, why they go there. You learn about the while, they're, while they're exiled. Yeah. And then right at the end of either of those two, there's like little snippets of hope for the future as they finish off those books. The very last of those historical narratives is they're in exile in the, you know, such and such day, the Lord elevated Zedekiah out of prison and gave him a table. And so it, in, it ends with this hope that there is a day of restoration coming. Okay. I wish that I had, maybe I was taught a lot of history, Israelite history, but I don't recall it. I don't recall here, you know, you have the 12 tribes, they come yeah, across sure. and then they break up and then there's two separate groups. There's the Northern, there's the Southern Kingdom. There's all this stuff going on that I didn't realize. So when I pick up the Bible and you, you right. read Psalm 125 and you're trying, you, you know, you're trying to, you're praying that God speaks to you in this Psalm, like that moves your heart. You really do need to go and learn the history yes. for it to make sense. Oh, you, you, so much of the scripture will make sense with a basic um, narrative, his, historical arc of the story. Um, if you don't know that, it's probably part of why it's so confusing. In fact, I would say that the history and the geography are probably the two biggest things that have helped me to um, enjoy reading the Old Testament is understanding that historical arc. I actually did several years ago. I haven't done it since my time at the rule, but probably going back about five years ago, um, I put together a course called the two hour tour, which oh, was, um, sounds exciting. Well, it was based on, based loosely on, um, when, uh, Jesus appears to the two dudes on the road to Damascus and basically takes them on a two hour Bible study as they walk the seven mile journey and shows them everything. And so I thought I'd riffed off that name a bit and said the two hour tour. And essentially it was in a couple of hours and I preached it over a couple of Sundays, did it also recorded it separately. Um, it was a, 
um, a narrative pathway that just basically touched the mountaintops of the story so that you could get those big significant moments in place to help you. So maybe we, you know, maybe it's worth me recording that fresh. I mean, that's very old now. So Might I, would, I suggest you do it because right, sure. I think people don't really have any clue. Sure. If I'm honest, because I had no clue. Right. And yeah. I might be the average person. No, no, I, yeah. no, that's been my number one experience. That's why I put it together. I think, I just think of history, I'm a history buff, so that helps me. But, but history and geography especially are the two big ones that can help you. If you yeah. can understand basic maps and you can understand what's going on where and north and south and east and west and it, it's all through Bible. So it just gives it, it fills in the picture and puts colour to it and background to it. So, all right, we might, maybe we can add that as a bonus episode. I can just do a bit of teaching on that myself. Yeah, that sounds good. Yep. All and, right. and might I add as well, when you're reading this Bible, translations are very, very important because I read it first in my New King James Version yep. and I had a lot of fun with it because it was so confusing to me. And then I picked up this trusty old NLT, NL- which NLT, is like okay. super stupid English. That is perfect for me. <laughs> okay. So let me just read to you verse four in the New King James. And the way I read it, it was completely different to as, what, to what, as actually to what I read. Like a bit of old English. Yeah, in verse 4, it says, Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Bring back our captivity. Yeah, it, it sounds, sounds like, like it's saying like we want to go back in. They want to go back A bit like captives. the Egyptians want to go back, the Israelites want to go back to Egypt yeah. again. No, yeah. That's... And so I started this whole this whole podcast going, why would they want their captivity back? What's going on? I thought, hang on a minute. I need Let's to pull check out a different version. to check out. <laughs> well, the King James, we've got that. Really it says, says, turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in, in the south. Turn our captivity. Yeah, so yeah, we don't get again. it. That no. Hang on. What 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 psalm are we reading oh, again? Psalm one twenty six. Okay. What's it say? In, so in, in the NLT, restore our fortunes, yeah. Lord, as streams renew the desert. See the difference yeah. there. Yeah. So I wouldn't know. I would have thought the same thing. And I never use the King James really, other than to look at the Strong's. But it says, "Turn again our captivity." Well, what does that mean? Well, the next line give bring me, back our captivity back, in the new, in the new King, James. King James. So they've tried that, but the next line says, "As the streams in the south." So that tells me, okay, whatever's happening to the streams in the south is see here's some geography boy. Whatever's happening in the streams in the south is something that's what it's an illustration of what they what they're asking for the Lord to do. And I suspect I don't know, but I suspect in the south it's very desert like. There is probably a sense in which um, streams turn around or cease or something like that. That's probably what they're picking up on. I haven't got time to study it now, not with the deadline we have today, but that is what the, the the analogy is. What does it say for the second line of verse four in the NLT? As streams renew the desert. As streams renew the desert. Okay. So, and that's what happens. You can also Google YouTube and see streams in desert Sinai or in, in the, um, in the Dead Sea area, and they just come out of nowhere. These streams are like major flash floods through the through the valleys, through the um, wadis in in that area, come out of nowhere, literally. So maybe that's what it's trying to say. You've also talked about in other podcasts how, and I, that's just life. How you have the lake, and then the streams flow down. Yes, it's like the spirit um, on the mountaintop. Flows, flows down. Yeah, yeah it's that's all the right. same concept. Isn't it's, it? it's all water same analogies imagery. again. Yeah, yeah. Until okay. people in a dry place renewing streams. Yeah, I, that's they've obviously interpreted renew the desert. I want to see how they've linked that with the streams in the south. It, some the, the desert is in the south, but that's an English translation, which is really good because I I'm confused by the King James and the New King James, like you. Yeah, I, I am too. I wouldn't know what it was saying. 
But I, you know, but the New Living Translators sco- um, scholars have obviously gone and re- researched this and put it into a language that makes sense to us. Yeah. And chances are that made sense to the king in seventeen eleven or whatever it was when no, it was earlier than that when when King James wrote his um what put his version together. It probably made perfect sense to them because it was the language of the time. Here's a sentence I wrote about it. They need a spring to restore the fertility of the land they live in. As people, we need the living water of Christ to renew and restore us. Oh, that's great. That's really good. <laughs> Sometimes and, I write things. I don't know what, how did I write that? No, that's, that's a really good reflection uh, technique there, folks. If you, if you are piecing together all these stories, Jenny's riffing off Jesus saying he's the water of life and springs in the desert and all that. That's the picture. That's what springs are supposed to be, this refreshing to them. So that's a really good, simple way to do a personal reflection and then journal that and write that. It's a healthy way to study the Bible. Well done. Oh, thanks. My next sentence. What burden if these streams dry up? How relevant is Christ's analogy of living water that never runs dry? Wow. These people lived their lives by the rains. Did I really write that? It sounds pretty good if you did. What burden? You're almost getting waxing poetical yourself there. I must have borrowed. I must have. I read a lot of stuff. So anyway... Yeah, but you also write really well, so that could have <laughs> yeah. been your own writing. That's really good anyway. That's I like that. So is this is this poem about recognizing how God moves in the stressful testing times and that his glory is still in the testing times? Keep going. That was, was my that, question. That was the question. Yeah. Um, I, I think you could read that. Yeah, I think you could read that. that this, at this particular time, <laughs> I think at this particular time, th- th- they're writing... They're, they're writing at a happy time. This psalm seems to be indicating a time when this psalm has been written at the time of rest- restoration, the time of coming back. Is it a time of change more so? Because verse 5, those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. Yes, and it, it could. So that the timing of that planting in tears could be interesting. It could be referencing the fact that we've planted in tears over the last 70 years in exile and now it's our time of joy. It right. could be that. Okay. Um, they will weep as they go to plant their seed. We've, we've spent that time. So the question is, have we spent that time weeping already and now it's a time of joy? Or, and this is the interesting thing about it, when they return from exile, that we see this in this, this is a great psalm example of it. They come back with great joy. But when they get back, there's this perspective when they arrive back in in the Holy Land that everything's going to be perfect. When they get back, it's far from perfect. You just read Ezra Ezra and Nehemiah, you realize that they've got enemies in the land. People have been living there for 70 years, don't want them back. They maybe had a sense it was all going to be wonderful and God was going to turn up when they got back and he was going to deliver them um, and they'd be the head and not the tail and rule over the nations and they get back and find it's anything but that. So a new level of tears. I mean, if if you've got your hopes set for something and you think it's going to happen, Maybe you've got your hopes set on a job and you think it's going to happen and then it doesn't happen. There's a there's there's a time of renewed let down expectations at that point. And maybe this is written to remind them, hey, guys, you got back and it's not everything it should be, but keep sowing because when the right time is coming, you'll reap. Yeah, it's like the ebb and flow of life. It's life in, in general. Yeah. And this is life. We have ups and downs in life. Being a Christian does not exempt us from ups and downs, hard times and good times. And the word weep in verse 6 they weep as they go to plant their seed. That is a good thing and also a sorrow thing. Mm. You're weeping because this is a new beginning, but you're weeping for the sad times. The sad times. Ahead the fact and that it's not, behind. Yep, all of that. Yep. Yeah, but then they sing as re, as they return with the harvest. So yep. they know that God is moving. They know that there will be the harvest. Yep. This is a, yeah. Yep. They're and not harvest losing were their always faith very happy times anyway in any agricultural cultural society. You can imagine there's parties and dancing. Book of Ruth's all about that. You know, you see them 
rejoicing around harvest time. It's happy. And they're dreaming. They've come from yes. captivity and yes. now they're dreaming for the first time. Yeah. Since captivity. Since captivity, they're looking forward. Looking forward. With a hope. Maybe they always had a hopefulness that one day, but there's an ex, they're experiencing something of that, but maybe it's not what it should be yet. Look at this verse here. These, these verses, five and six, there's the glory of the Lord in this, but he is telling you to dream yes. in the moment. Yeah. How often we don't dream. No. When we're planting and and with tears and things, yeah. When but it's, it's hard, encouraging it's a dream. us to dream. Yes, yeah. Keep, keep going. sight of the future, the harvest yep. that's coming. Yep. The glory of God is here and yep. also there. Yep, totally. He's in the harvest, but it's also in the, the the weeping. Yeah, and this sowing and planting theme is is biblical. God does it. It's seed time and harvest, and it will always be there. He says to Noah after the flood, and it's life. Proverbs says, um, cast your seed upon the water and in due time it will return to you. And that's a picture of this future harvest. That What they would do is they'd be upstream and they would throw their seed into the, the river. The river would carry it downstream and um, it would get down into the, what do you call the basins and the low-lying er- low areas at the bottom of the river? The, there's a term for it before it hit, floods out into the ocean. I can't think of the term now. But it would get down into these low-lying areas, the fertile areas, and the seed as the w- river would flood, it would go out and then the flood flood would come back down again and the seed would be there. And then actually nomadic people would come down later on and then when they got there, there's already a harvest. So there's a sense of faith and trust. Keep trusting that everything you're sowing in life is not being wasted. It might feel like you're planting seeds and nothing, seeing nothing, but there will come a harvest. There will be joy. There will be a time to sing and return and experience God's glory. I'm going to um, mention Pastor Fred here yeah. because... These verses, those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Yes. Um, Pastor Fred always says, yep. find read Jesus it, find it. Jesus in it. And he did. He he cried at yep. times. He was sorrowful. Yep. He was um, He was joyful as yep. well at other times when people turned to him. Yep. And uh, he is going to sing at the end of the harvest. Yeah, that's right? great. That's a really good thought. Well done. Yes, just a little tiny chapter. There's so much you can get out of it. There's so much in these few verses, which you often find in the Psalms if you pull them apart because they're rich in meaning and and allegory, as is all poetry. You know, you you light on words, but deep on meaning, rich on meaning. I remember one of the sermons that I listened to when I was first coming to this church and somebody got up to speak and they were describing it. They were living in a hard time, a bit of depression, and they said that they just read the Psalms every day and how much that changed their life. Yeah, great. Every morning they got up, walked their dog in the sunset, a sunrise, and read thought the of the glory of the God, Lord and read the Psalms. Beautiful. That's yeah. great. That's a good thing to do. If you need encouragement, find it here. Find it in the, the Psalms. Psalms. Where are we headed to? Uh, Exodus 3. Exodus 3. So we've gone back in time to Exodus 3. This is Moses at the burning bush. This is glorious. This is glorious. Yep. Okay. So one day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law and he led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't it that bush burning up. I must go see it. 
this is a pretty extraordinary moment, isn't it? He's out there. He's a shepherd. It's a shepherd, and this is not uncommon to see bushes struck by lightning in the. It wasn't the, it wasn't the fact that the bush was on fire that was strange to him. In the middle of a desert, these acacia bushes would be struck by lightning and bang, they would go up in flame. The strange thing was this one wasn't burning up. Right. Why isn't that bush burning up? Okay. So God acts first in this yes. in this encounter, yep. in this relationship. And he's, Moses goes closer and God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. And then he tells Moses who he is. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at him. I just want to point out here, he's afraid to look at him. Later on down the track, we know that Moses, he isn't afraid anymore. How much does their relationship grow? He sees him face to face and then his face actually shines with the glory of God later on. Really strange that one. Well, doesn't that show that pattern that God is saying, don't come closer. And this is almost like we talked about later on in Exodus is, it's an invitation. It's not saying don't come close. It's saying you need to do something to prepare your heart to come close. I want you close, but your your um, your heart is not in a condition where my glory will be anything but dangerous to you. You need to take off your shoes. You need to honor me. You need that's a picture of respect, and then there's an invitation to come close. It's also showing there's a difference between the two of us, right? It's creating that gravitas. Yes. Like. You, I am important. Yes. I am significant. I am different. Yeah. Take your shoes off. Yeah. Right. Uh, remembering that if you contrast this against the kings of Egypt, Pharaoh of Egypt, he has a gravitas about him and he demands a respect and he just demands an awe and you can't come into his presence unless you're invited and, you know, as all the kings and authority are, the difference is always with this Yahweh that is revealed in the Bible is his gravitas is only ever for our good as his subjects, not ever that we might uh, serve him for his, for his sake. He doesn't need that. He, it's, it's, it does us good to honor him, to, to respect him. And if you don't know anything about Moses, we again talked about this in our last podcast, Moses was brought up as a prince of Egypt. Mm. And then he, uh, he's actually a Hebrew that is adopted by the Pharaoh. Yep. And then one day he decides he cares about his Hebrew people and mm. he kills someone. Yep. And But then he's rejected by the Hebrews. They yes. sort of make fun of him, like, how dare you think we would follow you? And yep. then Moses runs away. So he's been sort of in, in his own exile for 40 years. 40 years at this point, yep. 40 years. And then he encounters this bush and... <laughs> he just thinks it's natural phenomenon. And then God appears. Yes. So this is a huge journey. Yep. Jack. I don't know what I would do <laughs> in this circumstance. But it starts off this entire story, really, of bringing the Israelites back to him. Mm-hmm. And so God appears here in, in a small little way, in in a sense, compared to how he appears in Exodus How he's about 14. to appear a few chapters later. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So he's treating, gen- we said how the glory of God can be gentle at times. This is a gentle moment, yes. right? Yep. Okay. There's still a presence and a gravitas and a weightiness about this. I mean, he's got to take his shoes off and God reveals himself, but it's um, it's obviously an invitation. He's Something about it is intriguing Moses to come. But it doesn't also 
state that Moses had any relationship with the with God. No. Prior to this. No. So he plucks him sort of out of obscurity. Yeah, and we we're left to guess as to what motives and what, what Moses's heart might have been like. There were obviously stories told. His mother obviously had some semblance of faith there. The people in Egypt had the slaves in Egypt had held on to some promises. They had hope. Well, they had hope. I don't think they had really had any promises of the way forward. There's no indication of that. Oh, yeah, they, they did because um, at the end of Genesis, there is this um, this declaration that, that uh, Joseph gives that when I go, take my bones with you. So there is a sense of one day you'll get out of this place, but it's, it seems very hopeless when they're in the middle of it. But somehow there's some sense of who this God is because when God reveals himself, they know the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're, they're their father. Mo, they're, Moses knows that story. Yeah, he does. Yep. Yeah. So he's revealing himself and attaching himself to, I'm that Yahweh. And here's a verse for those people who don't think God ever hears their tears or hears their tears. Yeah. Hears, hears their, prayers their prayers and sees yeah. their tears. Yeah. In verse seven, then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh, harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them come down so the separation yep he's in heavens above yep. and where the earth below yep to rescue them from the power of the egyptians and lead them out of egypt into a land fertile and spacious into a fertile and spacious land verse 9 look the cry of the people of israel has reached me and i've seen how harshly the egyptians have abused them now go for i am sending you to pharaoh you must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Moses, before Pharaoh, sorry, who am I to lead the people of Israel? God answers and says, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I'm the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship at this very mountain. We know that turns out to be true. That's true. He comes back to that mountain. He has a big relationship with that mountain. Yes, he does. God appears to him. Yep. In, a, in another way. In a, in, in a much more way. significant way than a little bush that's just burning. Yes. So how would you say, what is this glory we're seeing here? What's setting up the story? I, I think yes, the glory is the fact that, um, you know, if we we shouldn't water down the fact that you, if you're, of what's actually going on. Moses, Moses is standing before a tree that's on fire that isn't burning up and acacia is very quick to burn up. It's just not, and that's what the tree is from memory. It, it's... And in this moment, it's so glorious that God says, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And then he's pronouncing a a rescue. He's actually pronouncing a big rescue upon, um, you know, he's, he's pronouncing his plan to rescue his people. And where Moses failed before to lead a rescue, yeah, God is now God's saying, gonna, I am going to rescue. Yeah, great. I hadn't thought of that, but yes, that's right. It's like you tr- you tried to do a rescue here. You were trying to beat up that Egyptian that was foully treating the the Israelite. I'm going to take it a step further, and I am actually going to rescue them. And maybe God was acknowledging in this moment that, hey, Moses, I know you had a heart for your people, and you walked away from your riches. Yep, you your- had a prompt. There was something in you that wanted to do the right by your people, even though you had all the riches of Pharaoh's house at your disposal. Um, and there, God's using that that seed, if you like, and 40 years, 40 40 years. years of sowing in tears um, is about to reap in joy. Yeah, and, and people listening, you should take comfort in this because God isn't finished with you. He still has a plan for you no matter yeah, what age right. you Amen. are. Because he is 80. So he was 40 yep. when he killed these, this... Um, Egyptian yep. slave driver, runner or whatever you want That's to call right. it. And here he is at 80 years old and God says, hey, knock, knock, knock. Here I am. 
I'm going to use you. And Moses is like, no, no. No, I'm don't past use it. Me. I'm over it. I can't talk. I can't do this and that. I can't be what you need me to be. But and when and this is really interesting, Moses says or asks, who am I that I should go? God responds to him. But then Moses asks, well, who are you? And Moses' question was, who am I? God responds, I am who I am. Yep. I, I dot, think dot, it, dot. It's interesting that, and I remember hearing this years ago, I heard a sermon on this. Moses doesn't really ask who God is. Moses is questioning himself. Who am I? Who am I? What am yes. I? God doesn't worry about who he is. He actually tells you, well, let me tell you who I am. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? God's, Moses says, but who am I to appear before Pharaoh? How I can't do this. I can't do that. God says, I will be with you. This will be a sign that I've sent you. Moses said, I can't go. If I go, the people of Israel, uh, and tell the people of Israel, they'll say, well, who is he? So Moses is, Moses is, at that point, he's focused on himself. And he's, he's, he can't go. They're going to say, what authority have you got? What gravitas have you got to do this? What, what am I supposed to say then? That's when God reveals himself to Moses. So, and Moses says this, I am who I am, this famous statement. Yeah. It's funny how we say, I think, therefore I am. Yeah, that's a, it's a funny, I know, it's, I know, but I am who sent you. I am he who sent you. Isn't it? What does he actually say? I am who I am. Yeah. I am has sent me. That's what you're meant. That's what Moses is meant to say. Yeah. I am has sent me to you. And I think when you hear I am, it's so easy. I think we're meant to actually say, I am glorious. Yeah. I am saver. I am yep. healer. All of I those things. All yep. of those things. Yep. That's right. It's Go not on. meant to be I am full stop. It's I am dot, dot, dot. It's, it's um, I am who you need me to be when you need me to be it. I am enough. I am enough. You yeah. are not enough. No, but when, I am. Yeah. Yeah. My in the NLT says I will be what I will be. Um, I think, yeah, the, the best translation I've ever heard is that one. I am what you need me to be when you need me to be it. And that's the story of God. He, he's, he's always about manifesting his glory when we need it, not when he needs to show off. But when we need him to be something, that's who he will be. If we need love, he'll be love. If we need grace, he'll be grace. If we need power and victory and healing, he'll be power and victory and healing. And he answers all our problems when Moses says, "I, who am I? It's not that I'm good enough. God says, <laughs> me being, it's not Moses saying, I am not good enough. Yes. God is saying, yes, you're not good enough, but I am, but I am. everything. Yes, I am you what you'll need. need me to be. That's right. Don't worry about what you can and can't do, Mo. It's what I can do. <laughs> and then God, uh, he goes on to say, this is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Now go and basically be the leader that you thought you were going to be. Yes. It's only through me, I am, that you will be the leader that you dreamt about being. <laughs> we haven't done one today. <laughs> That's a revelation worth having. It is a revelation. Yeah. yeah, this should speak to so many people. Because no matter how old you are, the vision is there, right? Yes. The heart is there for your ministry, your service, whatever it is. And at some point, God is going to turn up and say, where's that God voice on that voice? God, God is going to, oh, God I have is, to. I am. Hang on, this, this is a bit more tricky. I am enough for you. That actually sounds creepy. <laughs> Please, Moses, do as I ask. And lead my people. I am. <laughs> That's scary. Oh, dear. Oh, no. oh dear. Still here. All right, here we go. 
Okay, so Moses, hears this lowly shepherd and his human power was gone. The power that he had in, in Egypt ra- ra- being raised in the Pharaoh's temple is gone. Yes. And so that allowed, and he's humbled. He's humbled in this place, yeah. which opens the door for God to come into his life with absolute power. And we see that story. Mm, totally. That change in people all the way throughout the story. And I think here we learn his his actual name is El Shaddai here. We have learned his name was El Shaddai before. Have we? God Almighty. And now he it's re- here. This is deeper revelation. Yep. Okay. I am. I mm-hmm. am reliever. I am conqueror. I am redeemer. I am deliverer. All those things. Yep. And El Shaddai is the, the God of abundance, the God of more than enough, the one who provides. It yeah. has a, that's where the, the, the word comes from. There's a big statement about God. And I want to point out something here, which I didn't catch first of all, but listen to this. Uh, wait a minute, where is it? When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. Have you ever heard the names called like that before? Martha, Martha, yeah, Mary, wow. Mary, Samuel, 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 Samuel. Yeah, and so it's Jesus uses that same voice. So when Jesus was, I think it's Martha. He says, to Martha, Martha. He's, you are worried and upset about many things. Yeah. Yeah, wow, that's good. So he doesn't just call you once, he calls, he calls you, you twice. Yeah. So we're seeing the I am, but mm-hmm. we're also seeing the forward echoing of yep. Christ yeah, that's great. in this moment. Yeah, great. That's really good. Wow. That deserves another round of applause, but I'm not going to press any more buttons because we're running out of time. <laughs> All right, let's go on. Let's move on. Where are One we headed? kick six. Here we are in One King Six. So I talked about One Kings before and I'd forgotten we we're actually going to go there. So this is taking place 480 years, I believe, since Egypt. It would be about that period yeah. of time, yes, that's and right. And about 440 yeah. years since um, Moses and the tabernacle. Right, yep, that sounds about ballpark figures, so you probably looked it up. That's, that's okay, so this is about Solomon building the temple. The temple, yep. So the we have the tabernacle, tabernacle which existed as the dwelling place of God, Yep. Uh, which we know didn't really remain like that because the ark gets taken. There's all sorts of things that happen in this history. But here, David has been given these dreams uh, of building a a temple, Mm -hmm. but it's not actually him who builds it. It's his son, son. Solomon, builds it. And in it, we see all the things, the same things, the bronze altar, the ark, the wash basin. They're all within this. And if you haven't listened to that podcast, go back and listen to that one. We're not going to get into it here. But uh, when you do read about it, learn about it, you know that a lot of it points to Christ. Yes, all yes, it all does. It yep. all points to Christ. Okay. Yep. So in verse 7, the stones – why did I pick verse 7? I'm going to read you about the stones used in the construction of the temple were finished. The, the quarry – do you have any idea why I picked that verse? I have no idea why you picked it. Um, I know why – that what teach what Bible teachers say. Oh, this it. is why I picked, picked it. it. The stones used in the construction of the temple were finished at the quarry, so there was no sound of hammer, axe, or any other tie, iron tool at the building site. We're now in the Iron Age, right? Yes, this is right at the beginning of the Iron Age. But that why was there no sound? Why was that important that there was no sound of hammering heard within the temple as it's being created? I think that's where I was where you're going. There's this sense yes. of it's, <laughs> I'm assuming. I mean, my understanding is that. 
it's once again recognizing the sanctity and the holiness that you're not striving and struggling to put something together to build a God's tab, uh, God's presence, God's temple. All of that human labor is being done outside, and when you come, you're you're um, there's a it's a respect for the building the buildingness. It's similar to the priests not having uh, wearing linen linen clothes so they wouldn't sweat. It's supposed to be the sense of I'm not struggling and striving in God's presence in human strength because that's what actually. We can't come into God's presence in our, in our own strength. Is that where you were going to go? Yeah. So it's understanding that there is a significance about God's character and we need to pay respect yes. even in the building of his temple, yep. which his God is meant to dwell in. Yep. Uh, that's our human offering, I suppose, yeah. of respect. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's, it's an understanding of the weightiness of God's presence. Even though God hasn't necessarily shown up in his presence yet, they're prepping for it. This is all part of the preparation for what God's about to do. All right. Okay. And so this whole chapter is basically just building. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's how the building takes place. It's the, um, the type of the building, the sign, the, the, what it'll look like. It's very much like re- rereading on a larger scale of stuff in Exodus around the plans for the tabernacle. It's just similar. It's just bigger. Bigger, much bigger. Same rooms, yeah. same principles, just on a bigger scale. Okay. And so here in verse 18, they talk about some of the materials. These, it's beautiful. It's meant to be absolutely beautiful. Uh, yep, absolutely. Cedar paneling completely covered the stone walls throughout the temple. So yeah. this isn't cheap. This is not a cheap And the paneling was decorated with carving of gourds and open flowers. So inside it, there's going to be flowers as decorations, which are reminding us of Eden. That's right. This is, this is right? mini Eden right here. This is so the, when this people, is yeah, people walk in, they are reminded, directly confronted with God's yep. creation, yep. which then brings them to memory of the Exodus, yep. God's glory and uh, God's character. And it's uh, the beauty here is reflecting God's own beautiful spirit, Yep. right? Yep. That God is a beautiful cre- creation, a creator that, creates with love. Yes. This is what we're getting. Yes, that's right. This should be a beautiful place, not a scary place. This is return to Eden. Return to Eden. Return to that walking with God like Adam and Eve had in Eden. There's a terrible TV show in Australia. I think it was in the 70s. It's on Amazon Prime now, Return to Eden. Return to Eden. Okay. (laughs) I'm seeing that one. (laughs) Don't watch it. Okay. But but it It, was massive. Most shows in the 70s in Australia, with the exception of a few, were pretty dodgy back then. Okay. (laughs) Not like like the shows you make these days. Much, much better Australian (laughs) television these days. All right. Verse 19. He prepared the inner sanctuary at the far end of the temple where the Ark of the Lord's Covenant would be placed. Uh, Then it's the, this room is overlaid with solid gold. He also overlaid the altar made of cedar. Then Solomon overlaid the rest of the temple's interior with solid gold and he made gold chains to protect the entrance of the most holy place. Yep. Gold. Gold everywhere. All gold. Is this where um, that Queen of Sheba, does she come and see all of this? Yes, later on she does. Yep. After, you know, a few years after this. Yep, she does. So when she walks in and she says, I've heard of your wisdom and your significance and your and riches. And your wealth and riches, yep. But she comes in and she sees this glory. This is what she is seeing. Yep. Right? She says it's far more than I could ever have imagined. Yes. Yep. And she goes back and there's rumors that she's sort of encountered God here, right? I think she she did. I think there's all kinds of rumors about what happened between Solomon and yeah. the Queen of Bathsheba. But um <laughs> There's probably some legitimacy in most of that, but um, we'll, we'll park that conversation. Yeah. For now. But um, but yes, she is when she sees the tangible richness and the wealth and the happy. She says the happiness of your servants and all that sort of stuff. What she doesn't see is some of the stuff that's happening behind the scenes. 
that's the abuse of power and so on that Solomon didn't get right. But what she sees is something that she um, is so um, enwrapped by that she senses the glory of God. And yeah, she's had some kind of encounter with God. She sees something here she's never seen before. Mm. So is she experiencing God's glory? That's We're kind of going about this in a roundabout way. But this is hugely different to anything. And like the Egyptians saw the walls of water and stuff, we know that when she encounters this. She knows the Lord. She knows the Lord. Absolutely. And I think if you track this through, we won't do it now. This is history again. Um, at least there's a, there's a very strong Jewish population in Ethiopia. And they, they track their history back to two significant encounters. This one and then Philip in Book of Acts when he meets the the queen of Candace, um, Ethiopian eunuch. And so they have a, so that's the Christian Jewish component, but there are, there's a strong Jewish presence that comes from this encounter. There's a sense in which she took the Lord back. She took the revelation of Yahweh back. And when she did, she started something back there. There was a, and historians tell us that there was a Jewish population, uh, God fearing population in, in that part of the world. You remember in when we were talking about this, the introduction to this little segment, you talked about how you can miss the glory and mm. significance, how some people can be yep. in a um, few meters away from somebody really important and they don't yep. know that person's important. Can we sort of see this happening here that the people who are always around the temple and they're going about their business or even within the church were sort of failing to see the significance of it, but then an outsider comes in and recognizes God's glory. May that be the case, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Which is true. We get complacent in God's presence. Oh, yeah, we're just going through the motions of church life, and we can miss that. But you you find a seeker, someone who is doing a hard time and shows up in church and has just had, either had or beginning to have an encounter with God. It's refreshing. One of the best things that we Christians can have is someone in our world who has just genuinely experienced a change recently. And they will, out of that, you know, that fresh encountered with God's glory, they're, they're more excited um, than, than many of us long-term Christians are because of the complacency that we get, this, medio this mediocre attitude towards the glory. We miss it. And we miss the uh, that God is sort of in a different dimension to us. He's in this heavenly world. Mm. We sort of, we think so much of our own existence and we want to prove everything mm. by science, by our own experiences and things. And yet in this temple here, there's a lot of imagery to another world, mm -hmm. to a different, use that word again, dimension. So there's cherubim yeah. all over this place. Big cherubim, <laughs> cherubim, seven and a half, the wingspan, 15 feet, seven and a half feet that's, long. That's a big gold cherubim, that one. Yeah. So, <laughs> But there's many of them. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're the ones on top of the, but there's cherubim all over. Yeah. Carvings of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers all with gold. When you see these creatures, are we meant to be confronted with our own humanity? Yes. I think that if you think of the Eden analogy, we should be, it's a, we see that this is God's intention. He's wanting to dwell with his people. There is a glory. Remember the cherubim in, in, <laughs> in the Garden of Eden story are there to stop people coming into God's presence. There's a, there's a glory and an honor about them and a, a gravitas on them that prevents um, Adam and Eve and humans from coming in. So we're supposed to see that there is, God's wanting us to come into Eden, but there are preparation and things that, uh, the things that's keeping us out, sin, 
and there is attitudes of our heart that are keeping us out, but he wants us to, he wants to invite us in to this place. So I think this is a good example of this should be glorious and wonderful, but also at the same time, weighty and, um, and carry with it a sense of, um, a fear, fear and wonder. And this is the temple that people are walking up to. Mm -hmm. They're walking up the mountain and God's glory is existing in this place. Yes. So they're meant to be looking up, thinking of (laughs) heavenly things on their way up. Yep. uh, Sort of which that walk up, those songs of ascent they sing is to drag them out of their present scenarios, circumstances, I I suppose, and to be able to recognize the God in their midst. Yes, that's exactly what. Well said. Well said. And do you know this temple took seven years to build? It did. There's a lot in that number seven. Mm-hmm. Seven years perfection. Yep. Seven years of... S- yeah. We should do a podcast on seven. Seven. Seven yeah. alone is a theme. We've touched on it plenty of times, but yes, a whole theme on seven would be fascinating. So this is kind of a boring chapter. Well, should we move on? Let's move on. It's never boring, but we'll move on. No. <laughs> Here we are, moving on to the Gospel of John. This is a huge book. There's a lot in this, but we're trying to get through it not as quickly as we can. But we'll have plenty of time in the Gospel of John. Yeah, this is a book that you keep coming back yeah. to. And I don't think we read John 1. We skip over. We'll do. I think we may have already done John 1 in a different context, I think, or we're going to do it at some point. I'm out of, they're a bit out of order, but I think we do John 1 a couple of times. John 2, we're going to. So it's this is the wedding of Cana. Yeah. Oh, this is the first miracle. Yes, this is Jesus' first recorded miracle, according to John. Certainly. According to John. Yep. Oh, well, he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. Signs. That's right. Signs. Signs which point to yep. his glory, God's glory. Yes, that's okay. right. Okay. Yep. Different because miracle, you just think, oh, magic. No, that's right. This is sign. actually for a purpose. This it's is appointed. a signpost pointing in a direction. All yes. right. Okay. So there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee and Jesus' mother was there. Notice how he doesn't call her Mary. Uh, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out and Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, he replies, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Why did why did his, his time not come? What does that mean? I actually don't know uh, whether he's playing with her and just saying, you know, s- just joking around with mum, saying, oh, "What are you? What are you about, mum? It's not it's not time yet." But he hasn't, or, or whether or not he is, um, he's still gathering his disciples together. So I, I don't know. I'd have to study it. Someone can study that. It would be easy to find, but we're we're on a tight schedule today. I well, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's not enough in the text to tell us exactly what Jesus meant, whether he was playing with his mum or whether he was literal. What do you think? You've done the research. <laughs> what does it say? <laughs> I don't know. don't know. There was lots of this contradictory thoughts. Yeah, I think this is this. an example where you're probably guessing because you you have to imply things that aren't in the text. We can un- ultimately only know what's written in the text with any yeah. any sense of um, certainty. I think it actually it. It points to her faith that she knew that he was capable of yes. it, oh, totally. and that he would do as as she asked. Yeah, honor your mother and father. You honor your mother. Yeah. yeah, yes. Yeah. But it is. I mean, it's at a direction like do whatever he sa- tells you. My, yeah. Well, obviously to the servants. Yeah, I 
I don't know how direct it is or whether it's just, hey, you know, there's a problem here. The servants have probably found out, um, you know, that there's no wine left and they're worried about how it's going to make their master look. And word's gotten around to Mary. There's some implication here. Some scholars think that this this could be indication. Cana is not far from Nazareth, that this could be a family wedding. How much it. wine has Mary drunk? <laughs> she shows up to her son and says, do a yes. miracle, son. Yeah, she doesn't wait for his response. She's just like, no, yeah. you do whatever you he do tells it. you. Yeah, that's right. Well, I've never read it, though. I've read it. It's, it'll be okay. The servants are stressed. It'll be okay. Just do what my son says. Everything will be. I think I read it that way. But once again, we have to be, we have to be flexible with what the story is saying because we have to. I mean, you're a story writer. You know that you have to go beyond the bounds of what is in the text to to fill out the story if you're telling it. And I, I choose to fill it out, <laughs> fill it out. So they're stressed out. They're worried. Somehow the word's gotten to Mary. Mary's gone to Jesus and said, "Come on, son, son, they've got a problem here." Yeah, it's a big wedding. There's a lot of drinking. Yeah, All his disciples yeah. are there, and cousin so and so is going to be really, so-and-so. really ashamed if uh, you know if we've run out of wine. And so, can you help? Is basically yeah. what she's saying. And he's going, "Oh, okay, mum. Oh, what are you talking about, mum? That's how I read it. Maybe yeah. wrong." <laughs> well, something I did notice about this, I hadn't thought about before. His disciples are invited to this wedding. Yes, they're there too. Yeah, this is the first miracle, yes. the sign that he does. So they have been drawn to him. They have decided to follow him without, yep. without seeing miracles. A miracle. Yeah, that's right. Yep. I didn't get. I didn't get that. I just thought that they saw all these miracles, and then he said, "Follow me," and then they followed him. No. In fact, later on, when he meets Nathaniel, I don't know if we're going to do that today. But yeah, he says to Nathaniel, "You saw me under a fig tree. That was a big miracle." And he goes, "I'll tell you what. You, you, yeah, that's right. You saw me under a fig tree when I was sitting down. That's a, that's nothing compared to what you're going to see." Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so in in verse six here, uh, it talks about these Jewish ceremonial washing, big things of um, thirty. Ma- Amanda's cold. bringing coffee to us. You can bring it up, Amanda. I'm, I'm trying to stay out of the camera. Oh, sorry, you can't uh, stay out of the camera. Wave to the camera, Amanda. If you don't know Amanda, <laughs> she's the best. She's the best. Decaf. Oh, she even brought she's me a decaf. The, oh. Coffee, um, guy and I oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. She brought me a decaf because I'm crazy. You see me on uh, caffeine. So yeah, we'll start talking really quickly like this. And then we'll be like, oh, everyone, let's go. Let's move through this chat. <laughs> she's trying to get through the chat. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Amanda. <laughs> I reckon that deserves a round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Amanda. So let's talk about this Jewish ceremonial washing. Yep. So there's these purification rites that the Jews are doing on a regular basis, yep. right? So these are sitting there empty. They've possibly for the wedding that they've all been purified before the wedding, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're impressed. Okay, so exactly. they do a lot of washing a of lot themselves. Of washing. A yep. lot of washing. Yep. Uh, that's something else worth talking about. Yeah, that's the traditions of the elders. I think we touched on it before, but we, yeah, we'll, I'm sure it'll come up plenty of times. There's chapters where Jesus specifically rebukes them that nonsense. Okay. So I did a little uh, study here. These are hot, they hold 20 to 30 gallons. <laughs> then fill the jars with water, he says. When the jars have been filled, t- dip it out, uh, take some out and then taste it. And then it basically just turns yep. into wine. <laughs> Do you know how much wine we're it's talking about here? a lot of here? wine. One gallon of water weighs 3.78 kilos. So yeah. these are huge. So these were about 75 0.6 kilos in a jar or 113.4 kilograms. Yeah. So we're talking 150 gallons of wine. One gallon is 3.785. Well, basically litres. a gallon is a litre. So that's, you know, close enough. That's a, you know, one, one, Amer- one American gallon is 
sorry, four, one American gallon is four litres. That's close enough to what you're saying. Yeah. If you're okay. Different. So I thought that was a lot until I read, that's about 40 bottles of wine. How'd you get 40 bottles of wine out of that? How many each could hold 20 to 30 gallons? Yeah. You're doing your maths wrong there. How many were How there? Six stone water. Let's assume worst case scenario, there's 20 gallons. One gallon is 3.785 litres. Yes. Okay. So let's work on the four litres just well, just for the sake of it. Let's work on three litres. Let's be really conservative. One gallon. I did this math three, about three times. Okay. So let me see if I can work it out. There's six of them. And let's assume there's 20 gallons. 20 gallons times three is 60 litres. Yeah. And there's six lots of 60 litres. That's 360 litres of, of wine. Okay, so there's about 400. So <laughs> we're talking about, and there's 750 mils in a bottle. So we're talking at least 400 bottles of wine. All right. I think I accidentally <laughs> left off a zero. <laughs> yeah, I think you must have. <laughs> this is a lot of wine. This is a lot. This is some serious drinking going on. There's some serious boozing. Yeah. Well, yeah, we've, a that's wedding. a whole different issue, but, but Jews love their wine. You know, that's yeah. very much the thing. It's, it's a sign of victory. It's a sign of blessing. Well, I know some people from my growing up that said this wine wasn't alcoholic. It wasn't alcoholic. That's the typical yeah. um, view from those that don't believe in alcohol. And when Jesus, but, which is yeah. even a, which is actually a miracle that happens, um, um, the second miracle that happens. I've heard this said. If that was the first miracle, was Jesus turning the water into non-alcoholic wine? The second miracle is the fact that they were all drunk on non-alcoholic wine. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's the first miracle because they were already. Oh dear! Oh dear! Okay, but Jesus says here, "You've kept the good wine until now," and I see that. As Jesus himself, he's, is he talking about, you know, we've had the good prophets before and now we have the true prophet, yeah. the good wine. He's, yes, he's, I think that's, that's the, it's a valid uh, rhetorical device that John is using. There is one that we're not going to go into for the sake of time here, but for those of you who want to do a bit of cross study, there's a story in the Old Testament where jugs are filled up with water and God's glory manifests. Do you know what story I'm talking about? Sorry, because I just read... You were reading something else, weren't you? No, well, John 11 basically just... John 2 verse, verse 11 exactly yep. says that. The miraculous sign at Canaan yep, in Galilee yep. was the first time Jesus revealed, revealed his, his glory. glory. And what's the other one? And his disciples believed in okay, him. Okay, so this is that they will know me moment. There's some they've, they've seen this, the glory of God, and they've gone, wow, this I believe in him now. Okay, so that's the, that's why I've chosen this verse, because this is a, a revelation of God, of Jesus' glory. Okay, now John wants you to cast your mind back to, I think it's 1 Kings 7 uh, off the top of my head. You don't have to go there. It's, right. not verse, it's not 1 Kings 7. My 1 Kings 11. One of those two. It's Elijah on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. And and they he tells them to fill up jugs with water, pour it out pour on the altar. The, altar. Yeah. the Lord's glory manifests in that moment. And the people go, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They know the Lord through the manifestation of that glory. John is deliberately telling this story to get you to think back to that. So when you see the Lord's glory, Yahweh's glory in Mount Carmel, you're supposed to think Yahweh's glory in Jesus in this miracle. Which also takes me back to Baal Zephon, Zach Ephron, the Lord of the sea, the yes. Lord of the water. Mm -hmm. So he's the Lord of the water yep. in that moment in that with moment. Elijah yep. and the Lord of the water. And in this, this is how the moment. biblical authors riff off one another. They build upon previous encounters and they often use, and they'll go further than we see in English. They'll, they'll use the same patterns of thought, sometimes even the same Greek word. Sometimes they'll use the same Greek word developed, sorry, the Hebrew word developed, or they will actually show a contrasting, but they're using all kinds of patterns to get you to think forward and think back at the same time. 
It's a brilliantly written piece of literature. Yes, I mean, it is. Inspired, I mean, John does that are, a lot. Oh, John does. That. Well, they all do. But yeah. you know, and you can argue about whether that's the Holy Spirit doing that. I, I think it's humans partnering with the Holy Spirit's revelation that's enabling them to do that. But John particularly does make a huge effort by going right back to the beginning. Uh, in the beginning was yes. the word. That's how he start, yep. starts it off. Yeah, he started and with so Genesis there 1. are things all throughout this, yes. which is what you're saying. Yep. And this is a really big book. like 21 chapters. 21, 20, cha- 21 chapters, yep. Yeah, big in terms of content, in yes. terms of what Christ says about himself, yep. uh, the miracle, the signs that we see. And so we need to get through this a bit, yes. but uh, it, I think you should do a uh, big chapter, a big whole thing on this. Yeah, well, John, I mean, Fred's written a whole book on John, but John is... Um, John's gospel was probably written later and he's he's less worried about historical um, chronological order of events. He's crafting this story to show how Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Yeah. All right. I'm just going to go to this next really weird verse. When Jesus goes to the temple and he clears yep. people out of the temple. In verse 15, Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them out of the temple. He drove out the sheep, the cattle, scattered the money's changes, coins over the floor and turned over their tables. Then he goes over to the people who sold doves and he says to them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. We we have heard this many, many times, but stop turning my father's house. This is the first statement he makes he, where he calls God his, his father. father. Mm-hmm. You're not as impressed by that as I am? <laughs> that is... <laughs> That it's the first statement? Well, well, just that he does call him his father. Oh, that he does call him his father. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, he's doing it intentionally. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then the whip as well. He's, he's thrashing people out. He's thrashing, whipping it around, thrashing it around, scattering people. This is a huge. Okay. So we've just seen his glory thing. manifest in a provision immediately before this. Yes. Now his, glo- now his glory is showing up in the presence. In fact, in John chapter 1. The Lord, uh, John says, we have all seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. And it's referring to Jesus. Now we're going to the temple and his glory, Jesus is showing up in the temple. The glory of God is showing up in this temple. They think the temple is glorious. It's nothing compared to the glory of the one who's walking in there. And his manifestation of his glory this time around is manifesting itself in a different way. It's manifesting itself in a justice. Because the reason Jesus is angry, the reason he is driving them out is not because he's he he's he's angry about the injustice of the money changes and the the um the way that the poor are being treated and they're being used and they're being taxed and you know you bring you, you, there's they're using high um interest rates if you like and for, to change money and all that kind of stuff so the poor are being abused and he manifests his uh, glory in a in a justice a standing up for the poor so God's anger is manifest against the self-righteous, the elitist. Could he also be angry that they have forgotten the gravitas of God, his Absolutely. significance and importance? Absolutely. That, uh, remember how he asked, God asked Moses to take his shoes off yes. before him. Oh, yeah. But here's the temple. They're all in this place where God dwells, and yet they are... Exchange. They they have their shoes on, but they're also exchanging money. They're oh, absolutely. Also doing all missed, those they're, they're supposed to be in things. the temple, and God's temple is supposed to be care for the vulnerable and the poor. That's what God is all about. And He's saying, "You're claiming to be in my temple, where my presence is, and you're anything but caring for the poor and the vulnerable. You're the opposite of that. You're you're using them. You're taking for yourself, and that's what He's incredibly angry. How can that be the Father's house? He's going. You're making a mockery 
of the father. You're not representing him well. Yeah, so it's showing their relation or rather their thoughts about God, isn't it? Yeah. That they don't even care for his no, glory or right. for him. They have turned this place into a market. Yep. yep. Okay, that's so it's showing the heart here. This is a hardened heart. They've got, They've got a hardened no heart. relationship with God. No. Okay, and then <laughs> I say, okay, as if that sounds like a good thing, but... No, we're on the clock, <laughs> Jenny. we're on the clock. Okay, and then Jesus says, passion for God's house will consume me, which is a direct quote from another scripture, yep. uh, which is the disciples later on remember this prophecy then, from the scriptures. That's right. Yep. And then the Jewish leaders here, they demand a sign. If God gave you authority to do is show us a miraculous sign. Mm. And then Jesus says, all right, in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then they make a mocker of him and yep. they say this this, this temple, temple took 46 years to 46 build. 46 years, yeah, which is the second temple. So this is not Solomon's temple. No, this we is should the, state that Solomon's temple took seven years and that was destroyed. This is the new temple. This is the new temple version 2. Version 2, 2.0. Well, it's actually 2, it's version 2.1. 2.1. It's the same. The original temple they built when they came back that Ezra and Nehemiah built was much smaller. About um, 30 to 40 years before this, King Herod had enlarged it and made it much, much bigger. He, he, he built, he rebuilt it or ex, he basically did ex, extensions on it. So the temple they have here is one that King Herod has built, which has basically filled the entire plaza of what we had called the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. Much, much bigger. Bigger than even Solomon's was. I like how in verse 22, and often when I have read the scriptures, I read them just sort of, can I, is the word, do I mean consecutive? But I just mean that I think they're just, happening at once but really john is adding bits in yeah that they have seen in hindsight this is this is why i'm saying john's story you don't have to worry so much about the chronology and john's story he's weaving it together to tell that the point is they the disciples put their trust in him they all know the lord they'll know the lord that he's revealing himself that's the story that he's trying to tell in john too whether these stories happen simultaneously because in the other gospels the cleansing of the temple this this event takes place right at the end it's one of the last things jesus does before beginning of his week of the passion week so the scholars go oh did it happen twice or what's the story i don't think that's the point i think john is just trying to make he's using the story at this moment to illustrate a point that god when jesus shows up he's going to manifest his glory in the, in the house all right so after he was raised in verse 22 the disciples remembered he had said this and they believed both the scriptures and what jesus had yep. done they knew the lord they knew the lord but they after the fact. Yep, after the fact. But that see that you've got to see that parallel there is exactly the story before. When they saw the miracle, the glory, they put their faith in him. That's exactly John's repeating what he said above in the story of um of the wedding at Cana. And G and he's showing here that Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. Yep. When he says my time has not yet come. Yep. He knew that one day he will destroy the temple and in three days yep. raise it up. Yep, that's right. He knew right. his entire life yep. of ministry. Yep, that's right. Yep. Okay. It's all mapped out for him. All right, let's move on. in John chapter 3 with one of the, I think, the most interesting conversations in the Bible or encounters. It's an intriguing one, isn't yes, it? It is intriguing. And there's a lot. We're not going to have time to do it justice today. No. But uh, there's a man named Nicodemus and he's a Jewish religious leader and he comes upon Jesus uh, 
in the dark. He comes to meet him in the darkness. And he basically asks uh, in verse 2 here, We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Can you imagine hearing that? I, I don't know what I would say. I would probably have exactly Nicholas's. How dare you? <laughs> what do you mean? How can an old man be born again? Um, and then Jesus says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. That, wow. Going back to Exodus 14, in a way, the kingdom was born of water in that moment and of God's spirit appearing yep. at the same time. Yep. And Nicodemus knows that. Nicodemus, he knows this. He, he's limiting himself to physical birth here, but Jesus is trying to take him on a journey and saying, because Nicodemus knows, he's, he's, he's actually, it says actually later on, he says, you're, is it there? He says, or oh, in a moment, he says, I sure, um, he says, you are Israel's teacher. Actually, is, Nicodemus isn't just some ordinary Pharisee. This guy is like the professor at Harvard. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's the dude and he doesn't get it. He admits that Jesus has come from God. What was nope, that? That was Siri or something. My phone just spoke. Watch just spoke to me. Hurry up! It says. Oh, it said Harvard University. They <laughs> <laughs> must have must have heard me say something and thought it was yeah. speaking to Siri. So he admits Jesus has come from God because no one can do these signs. So he's believing in the signs, but he's not believing in what Jesus says at all about himself. That, that's right, yes. And we see this throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament, that people are so ready and willing to believe the miracle. And yep. they do. They believe yep. the miracle worker, but they don't believe the miracle yep. worker is who he says he is. I think I think maybe we could be a little bit more kind to Nick than this. I think the fact oh, that... Oh, I like Nico, yeah, as I, I think call the, him. Nico, I think the fact that he's actually t- gone under the dead of night means he's intrigued, but he knows that it's going to look dodgy. Well, but, Jesus says to him only... Um, Bad people operate <laughs> darkness. <laughs> sorry, things operate operate in the darkness, and you are operating the darkness. So Jesus directly calls him right. a sinner, and directly calls yes, him he, he's he, an he, evil worker because he's living in the darkness. Oh uh, wow, I've not thought of it that way before. He does. He, t- yeah, he totally right. takes him on here. Yeah, and the ju- here I think the says, thing is he's not. He's people love him the on darkness yes. more than the light, and Nico loves the darkness. And he's there in the darkness. I think he is yeah. trying. I'd see it more invitationally rather than condemning. I think you could think of this as Jesus. I don't think of this scripture as Jesus hellfire and brimstone. I think this is. No, I think it's quite the opposite. I think Jesus is intrigued by this guy. Now, I could be completely wrong, but I've always read it as Jesus is acknowledging him. He's received the guy. He comes in the middle of the night and he says, let's have a chat. And he he senses something, a little bit like God saw in Moses. There was something of a seed there. And he takes him on a journey and he's he's playing with him. He's trying to invite him in. I don't see him. He even, speaks plainly with Nico. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he does. But he's taking him on this journey towards revelation. And we know that Nicodemus gets this because later on, Nicodemus is there with Jesus. But isn't the revelation the fact or in this moment that Nicodemus is this big Pharisee and he sees himself above the people. He, he thinks that he's walking in the yes. light. He thinks that he knows the truth. He thinks that he has a relationship with God. And yet Jesus says to him, actually, you live in the darkness. That's what he's trying to say. But he's not doing it in this, you're a worm, you meet, you know. Oh. I think that's the problem is that it's probably, it's probably <laughs> your he hellfire yeah. and Billy Graham Baptist roots coming out there, G. That's right. Yeah. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I, I It doesn't fit that Jesus approaches someone who comes with a heart and to to he might have his problems and he's self-righteous and all that, but I think Jesus is trying to let him see the error of his ways in a conversation. He's, it's, this isn't a condemning conversation. This is a convicting conversation. It's trying to get Nicodemus to the point where he goes, oh, I'm not who I thought I was. 
I thought I was that. Oh, actually, I'm I'm not. I need I need a savior. I need I've got sin in my heart. I think it's an invitation into that. But that could be me reading my personality into it. So you, you and others may read that differently. Don't forget, Jesus did come into the temple with a whip. Immediately before? Yeah. Yep. yep. Some people need to be whipped. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just start. We need to censor that one out of the equation, I think. That needs. That's a new sound. That was the one I was thinking. Oh, dear. Oh, I thought it was going to be that that's a good beep. <laughs> but it is a great conversation. Jesus didn't hit the people with a whip, by no. the way. He, 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 whipped, he just cracked the he whip. He just cracked the whip. Yeah, that's yeah, right. All right. Okay. Uh, so, but here we, we're speaking, Nico speaks a lot about heavenly things. Oh, sorry, Jesus, Jesus speaks does. of heavenly things. Yep. And we're seeing there's this separation between heaven and earth. Yep. And he's really showing Nico that Nico has, he started to live his life in the earthly realm yep. and he has no clue about the spiritual realm. But then Jesus speaks so much of the, of this heavenly world, which I kind of missed. Yes. Yeah. He the whole conversation, that's why the conversation is so weird. He's trying to blend heaven and earth here. But if you, in verse 12, if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the son of man has come down from heaven. And here he goes to Moses Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. This is a conversation about science and logic versus heavenly things because Nico knows that those people in the story, the bronze snake was held up as it goes and those people who came upon it and looked at it were healed. There's no way this bronze snake could heal. It has no health. health No. Factors no, it cannot no. heal a people, so the spirit of behind it, yes, the heavenly power behind it, yep. So it's blending the heaven and the earth. It is, here. Yeah. yes. In fact, I'm going to go further and say that in the Old Testament, lots of symbol symbolic acts have a an outworking. You get to the end of the Old Testament, and this particular symbolic act has no fulfillment. This is one of the few where you can't. You go, what What is the deal with the snake? Snake is seen as as the opposite. The snake in when you see serpents in the Bible, you see serpent as Genesis. You see see serpent in a spoken of in a bad way um, as the devil. And then it seems like we're holding up this bad symbol, and healing is coming. There's no answer to that. The prophets don't address it. No one addresses it until this moment. Jesus arrests and takes that unanswered prophecy, that uh, the thing that doesn't have meaning, and he's actually going to apply it to himself. He's going to say. In the same way that that happened when the Moses handed up the serpent, lifted up the serpent, I will be lifted up and I will bring healing to the world. So he's he's fulfilling that. And you think, well, how does that work? Jesus isn't the serpent. No, the picture is not that Jesus is the serpent. The picture that Jesus is likening himself to the serpent on the rod here is to saying that on the cross, the serpent, sin, is exhausting its power on him and it's being defeated in that moment of him being lifted up on the cross. So that everyone who believes in him hanging on the cross is, yes. uh, will have eternal life. Yes. So he's, as you're going on about, he is the healing yes. power behind the snake on the That's cross. That's correct. Yep, exactly right. And that then leads into verse For God 16. so loved the world That's so that right. he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Mm. God sent his son. So here he is saying he is God's son. Yes. This is a big. Yep. Big statement. Big statement. 
Yeah, and it's he's speaking about faith where I think Nico had become – he started to live his life completely on tradition. Yes, yeah, thinking that he was getting there he with all he do. knew and his human yeah. knowledge and understanding and, and what he could do. Yeah. yeah, but Jesus is saying, well, hang on, this is all about faith. This is yeah. all about things you cannot see, yeah. the miracles that happen beyond the bronze, yeah. those strange spiritual things. Yep. Right? Yeah, totally. I think this is why I'm saying – look at the, the tone of verse 17. It says, God sent his son not to judge the world – but to save the world. I think there's supposed to be an invitation to Nicodemus. This is supposed to be, I kind of picture this being a serious conversation between two, a little bit like we have a bit of a serious conversation, but the, so serious, but <laughs> the difference, I mean, the difference between uh, Nicodemus and Jesus is, you know, it's huge. Jesus is just almost goading him. Come on, come with me on a journey. I want to, I want to explain some things to you. You think, you know, you don't really know. I don't think it's a, you're an idiot, Nicodemus. It's trying to get this revelation into him through, uh, through this conversation. There's no judgment against anyone who believes, mm. right? But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. He's, he is trying to open Nico's yes, eyes to the, the true intention behind all the scriptures. Yep. And the judgment is based on this fact, verse 19, God's light came into the world, right? This is going right back to creation. Yep. But people loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. I think he is saying here, Nico. I think he's playing. Your with actions him. are a little bit uh, evil, th- brother. Well, he is. Yeah, but and not I, he, he is. But in a way that's open to invitation. It's not. It's not condemning. It's convicting. That's what I'm trying yes, to get. It's this convicting. Is, it's yes. convicting. Okay. It's. It's. I want you to get this. Not because I'm against you. I'm actually for you, Nick. I know there's something in you that wants to make this right. Like you said to Moses, there's something in you, Mo. But you need me in the mix if you're going to do this. You think you've got it right, but you don't. And in verse 20, all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. This reminds me of what we were talking about before. You can be standing in the, gro- in the proximity to greatness to, and not recognize it. Yes. I think this is saying sometimes if you, you do sort of recognize it and you're too scared to be exposed, you don't want to go into the greatness. Yep. I like it. Yeah. It's a good thought. But those who do right, who do what is right, come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. And here that's an invitation to Nico, isn't it? Yes, but it is. But those who do right, do, <laughs> those who do, do what is come right, the light. come to the light. Yeah. Now we haven't got any time to go into this. We will in future weeks. There's a lot of language in here about your actual actions. We Pentecostals and we Protestants like to kind of almost dismiss the actions because we're not saved by them. But there's a lot of reference to doing the right thing throughout this. Yeah. But we'll come back to that. Yeah. And Jesus is saying he he's sort of staying here. I am the son of God. And then these next verses go on. John the Baptist then confirms that he is Jesus. Yes. That he is the son of yep. God. Uh, and he was a great voice at the time. Yes. Yeah. But prior to this, John's already got quite a following himself. Yes, he does. And so that's uh, a good thing to be for John the Baptist to say, this is him. People yep. would say, wow, what? who is this guy? Well, he is sent by God. He speaks God's words for God gives him the spirit without limits. That's verse 34. Verse 34. Yeah, I know we're skipping ahead. Yeah, we won't have time to ahead. dig into John in great depth at the moment. And anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life, showing you there's a heavenly world again. Mm. Jesus spends a lot of time here and John the Baptist as well, pointing to heavenly things. Yes. Showing us also that there's a separation between heaven and earth. Which yep. goes points right back to the beginning right back when to that Genesis. separation is made. Yep, that's right. 
but God still desires relationship with us. That's right. The, the coming of Jesus is the ultimate paramount example of that. Go and read this chapter. It's a good one. But I'm going to move on to chapter four. in John 4, the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Just as confusing as John 3's conversation, actually. <laughs> yeah, this, this conversation is an intelligent conversation. Very, very uh, With a woman, yeah. right? Yep. And it actually, I believe it's the longest recorded conversation. That Jesus has. That Jesus has. I think you told me that in a staff meeting one time yeah. and it never occurred to me, but you're absolutely right, it is. Well, By a long way. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it, but it goes through so much. It talks about Jewish history and it talks about the temple. It talks about... Uh, you know, Jesus actually confesses here in like verse 26, I am the Messiah. He yep. hasn't said that at any nope. other point. He says that to a woman. He says that to a Samaritan woman. Yep. Now, can you explain to me why, what is a Samaritan? Like, why is that a big deal? Okay, so why is she just not called a woman? The, why is she the, the Samaritan The other time we woman? hear of Samaritans is the story of the parable, famous parable of the Good Samaritan. So the Samaritan people were a... An ethnically half-bred race is probably the best way to put it. I'm going to use that language sensitively under, you know, because I realize that is sensitive. But historically, at the exile, when the Jews had been um, exiled, well, actually, it's prior to the exile. The exile of the Jews was uh, was um, at, uh, was under Babylon, uh, under the Babylonian Empire and Nebuchadnezzar. But prior to that, the Northern Kingdom, which is where Samaria is, Samaria was the capital city of the Northern Kingdom. It was defeated um, and taken and overthrown by the Assyrians, um, another empire that preceded Babylon, and they were taken away. And some of the people from other other parts of the empire that had been conquered were, came and settled in that land, and some were left there. Uh, some of the some of the Israelites were left, the poorer ones were left, and um, others would come, and so they sort of interbred, and they had some sense of worship of Yahweh. Um, they were uh, into synchronistic worship, a bit of this and a bit of that, and so they started to worship, and some some of the other it talks about it in I think it's in Kings or Chronicles or something. Some of, some of the others came from other nations came and started to try to worship their gods, and it didn't work out very well. So they sent some back and taught them how to worship Yahweh. So we have about four hundred years of this synchronistic worship. This this group of people called Samaritans living living um, in and very close to basically between Galilee and Jerusalem, right in the middle, is a group of people who are a, the Jews regarded as half-breeds. They regarded them as outsiders because they weren't pure, authentic Jews. And there was a deep disdain to the point where uh, Jesus would often, well, Jews would, when they had to travel from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem, they would avoid this land completely. They would go nowhere near it. Even though it was the shortest route, they would stay away from it because there was this level of, of disdain that they had for the Samaritans. That was a great way of saying it, but I was kind of hoping you would say they're distantly, distantly related. They have different cultures, but also similar mixes in the cultures, and they hated each other. There you go. There you great. Go. <laughs> okay, so and that they, wouldn't have helped them in history, but that's no, good. No, that's good. no, that's exactly right. Say it again. No, I can't. Distantly what related. I said. Distantly related. Similar practices. Similar, sim similar and different practices yep. and culturally yep, in culture, correct. and they yeah. just and they didn't worship Yahweh in Jerusalem. They worshipped Yahweh on a different mountain. Mount Gerizim. They had different beliefs about what the same God. Yes, different okay. beliefs about different the same God. Different practices and beliefs. Yep, that's right. And this woman, so she, 
Jesus has actually come to her. This is the interesting point. He has sought her out. Instead of going around Samaria, as you said, uh, he has come straight Straight through through. to seek this woman out and he's waiting at the well at midday. Yes. Now, only women of ill repute come to the well at midday and she's come by herself, which suggests she has no friends. She's got no friends. She has a reputation. She's an outcast outcast outcast. among the outcasts. But she's smart. And she's seeking. She answers his questions in a way that people who, well, she shows me that she has a heart turned towards God, that she is seeking love. She's seeking, in a way, repentance, I think. She's seeking explanation. And they have this long conversation about where the temple should be. And, uh, And she says herself that she knows the Messiah is coming. Yep. All right? Yep. But And then he tells her, he says this funny thing. Uh, he talks about this living water. This is the first time we hear the living water because uh, he has asked her for a drink yep. and she has dr- drawn, drawn this presumably. water up. Yep. And he says in verse 10, if you only knew the gift God has for you and you were speaking to and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Now, she, later on, she knows who he is, who she is speaking to, and she receives this living yes. water. Yeah, great. Right. Don't forget that. Okay. Yeah. She, then she says, but sir, you don't have a rope. This deep water is very wet. This well, well is, is deep. deep. How would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty, but those who drink the water I give them will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Talking back to the Psalms, we hear so much about springs. We yes. read about it. Springs, bubbling life, fertility, yep. water, yep. all sorts of things. And then she says to him, give me this water. I want to drink that kind yeah. of water. And this moment here is an extraordinary. When he says, go and get your husband, she says, I don't have a husband. She's so ready and willing to confess mm-hmm. her sins. She has no fear. She has, she probably, I would assume she does have shame. Maybe because she says, you're right. I don't have a husband. And then, and Jesus is like, yeah, you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man, which might not sound shocking today, but back then this is very shocking. Oh yeah. Culturally, this is very shocking. Yeah. She's an outcast. And then she's like, you must be a prophet. Then they go on to have this conversation about the mountain. And then he, he values her intelligence here. He actually tells her beyond the next few years. He says there's going to come a time. There's going to that. come a time beyond this when there'll be no mountain. You won't worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. Yep. He's entrusting her with... With huge with a, knowledge. A wealth of knowledge. Yes, yeah. absolutely. He doesn't just like this woman. He loves this woman. Oh, totally. Deeply. He has come to see her and he sees her future life within her. He He's seen... Her in this in the past, you would assume, because he's come, he's come yep. to meet her, and he sees a seeking heart. A yeah, whether he's seen heart. her in the past or, or whether or well, in not. his mind, in his in mind, his godly yes. mind, yes, yes, right, like he saw Nathaniel under the tree. Yes, that's what I think is going on. He says it starts with Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to go. They didn't no. go through. So the, the having to was I had a purpose to meet this woman. Yes, totally. And the woman says. Uh, oh no, Jesus, Jesus says here, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must mer- worship in spirit and truth. And she says, I know the Messiah is coming. She knows the scriptures. She's, yep. a, she's a seeker. She is a seeker. And the one who is called Christ, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Different to Nico. Mm-hmm. Nico 
doesn't assume the Messiah or mm-hmm. doesn't assume that there is anything to learn. Yep, yep. He thinks he knows everything he's So his problems already. are different. His problems are different. He, he's intrigued, but he's got a different issue that he needs. He, he needs a fresh revelation of his own sinfulness. This woman clearly has an understanding of her brokenness and she needs different something different. So Jesus is to her what she needs him to be. She's an I am to him in a yeah. different way to she is to Nick than he was to Nicodemus because Nicodemus needed something else. Yes. I am the Messiah. Yep. That's exactly what he says to so her. What he says. To a woman. To a woman of a different nation who the Jews went out, uh, you know, despised. And I think that tells us something about this glory, this this one who comes is he is so for us. This is not a condemning conversation. Heck, I think of many Christians who would not, I just think if I, if the church today was having this conversation with this woman, I don't think a lot of the people in the church would handle this conversation well because it'd be judgmental and critical and all that. This is a, this is an endearing conversation. Yeah, there's confrontation and yeah, there's a recognition of, of, of a need for change, but there's an invitation here and of acceptance. I see you. I see you. And how gentle and soft is it? Yeah. Is he? But he's he's more than that. Like all the men in the village have hated her, aside from the five husbands. Well, maybe the ex-husbands. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. But he's come and he is showing her love. He's showing her value and worth. Yes. Being a Jewish man, speaking to this yep. Samaritan woman, showing her enormous value. Because even his disciples come back and they're like, why is he what's, talking what's to a woman? What's all this about? What are you doing talking to this woman? What's he doing? Yeah. Oh, the depth, Paul says something like, oh, the depths and the wonders and the glory of God. This is one of those wow moments. The glory of Jesus is so glorious that he's breaking with all tradition here um, to go after this woman. We see that time and again with Jesus. And then he talks about um, with, he talks with the disciples about the harvest and that people have planted seeds. Now, obviously somebody has planted a seed in her heart and Jesus is here and he's harvesting Yep. <laughs> this yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that before. Yeah. Yep. And what joy awaits both the harvest planter and harvester alike, which is also Jesus. Which He's is the Jesus. planter and harvester yes, that's as right. well. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And as and he um when Jesus says to the disciples in thirty eight, I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant, others had already done the work and now you will get to now gather you'll get the, to harvest. Reap the harvest. And now is this where he says pray for uh, no, I, no, that's pr- later. That's it. No, I don't even think it's in this gospel. It's, no, that's not. Okay. It's in Matthew's gospel, yeah. I think. But because of this conversation with this woman and the woman goes back and basically preaches. Yeah. Come and see a person who told me, man, who told me everything I've ever done. Yeah. That's a transformed heart from a woman who's living in shame in the middle of the day, staying away from the crowds to be so transformed and revolutionized that now she's going and preaching about everything that she's experienced. And they're changed. They are They changed. come out and they meet with Christ. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? They, yeah. Who is this man? Yep. Uh, and they beg him to stay in yeah. the village and he stays with them. Wow. And they hear, you know, interesting here, he stayed for two days long enough for many more to hear his message. I don't read here that he performs any signs or miracles or wonders. Isn't that good? It's not all about the miracles. They're, they're not looking for that. They're looking for Messiah. They're looking for teaching. They're looking for revelation. They're hungry hearts. Yeah. Yep. So he just sits and he talks with them. Mm. Yep. And they're changed. Like the disciples, he hasn't shown them any signs and miracles before. Before, yes. Before the wine. Yeah, that's right. And they're here and they say, now we believe, but because we have heard, not because of what you've just said, but because we have heard him. Yep. Not, doesn't say, because he healed my son. No, that's right. And it's not that those things are bad. They're signs, but there'll come a point at which we need to respond to revelation 
and the love of God more than what God can do for us. We respond to who he is, not what he does. Yeah, and um, I'm sort of saying this because they're believing just what they're hearing and and the communication within their hearts. They're seeing his glory in a soft, mm. loving mm. manner. Mm-hmm. And I'm making the, I'm trying to make the point that when they saw God's glory in a big way in the Red Sea and they see these miracles and signs, they still don't. Yep. Their hearts aren't changed yet. It's the soft, quiet voice great. that meets us or meets this woman and yep. they're changed. Yep. I agree. Yes. And it, many that. times we see, it, Jesus even says it later on. You've seen the miracles. You've seen the miracles and you still don't you believe. You still don't believe. No. no. And that should be something to all of us that he's more interested in a, a personal, intimate encounter with us, coming close to us, drawing close to us than just big grand signs for the sake of it. Yeah, and in the next chapters we have the um, the feeding of the five thousand, and they and they then argue. They get fed, then they and yeah. then argue. Yeah. Who is this man? What, what's going yeah. on? Why should we believe? Yeah. And we also hear uh, a lot of people, disciples, even turning away. Mm. So should yeah. we go to those chapters? Yeah, sure. Chapter five is an interesting chapter. Uh, I say interesting a lot because so many things are interesting, and I There's really a have a lack of vocabulary. In the middle of John's books, yes, yeah, John, so John's gospel. Jesus goes to this uh, well. He's inside Jerusalem at this point. And there is a well and there's a lot of sick people there. And this there's one man that's been lying there for 38 years. Mm-hmm. Jesus walks past all the other blind, lame and people and he goes to this one man. And he says to him, would you like to get well? And the guy goes, I can't, sir, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else gets there ahead of me. Here's the water again. There obviously has to be some sort of healing power in this well because it says yep. later on an angel stirs and some people have gone into this yep. water and been healed. But this guy, he can't get there. Quick little lesson. This is an Asclepion. Uh, uh, an uh, what? Asclepion <laughs> named after the Greek god Asclepius. I've been to this place and uh, they've unraveled it. They've discovered it in the last little while. And it says there's five covered porches. They've actually found those five. For years they thought, for years they thought, oh, this can't be true. They can't find this story. They've now found this a porch with this pool. They found the pool of Bethesda. There's a church next to it. Five covered porches. So they can identify this was a, a real place. And an Asclepion was Greek mythology. Uh, in Greek gods, I've actually been to one as well in Ephesus, and uh, where the the original Asclepius is. It's a place where they believed that the god that the god Asclepius would he was the god of healing, and so they would have this this spring was there was a spring coming up well that would bubble up in this water. They saw that as the angel stirring the water became a place of healing, but it would bubble up, and they had this belief that when it bubbled, first one in got healed. Jesus comes to this place to do another. Zac Efron deal. He comes to show that he is God <laughs> over Asclepios. Yes. He's about to do a miracle that shows that he is the God over the God of Asclepios, that you, you believe in that God. And, and they twisted it and thought it was angels. He's going to show I'm the one who brings the healing. Because I can't imagine there would be many of these places. There's, they're scattered all over the, the Roman world, the Greco Roman world. That is said to be healing. Uh, the Asclepions, yeah, they're all over. Are they all, but they yeah. all say you can get healed. Yes, yeah, all in different ways. Ah, but yes, they were, okay. sent, they were basically Greek hospitals. They were regarded oh. as places where you would get healing. So they did all kinds of different things. Okay. But you, you can Google Asclepius 
And But this particular one was the sense of a well, jump in the water, you get healed. And Jesus doesn't even touch him here. No. Would you like to get well? I can't, sir. Then Jesus says, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly yep. the man was healed. He rolled up his mat and began walking. How cool was that? Yeah, but this miracle happened on the Sabbath. Oh, absolutely. So the Jewish leaders objected. Jesus was stirring a different kind of water. Yeah, yeah. They don't object to the healing. No. But they say, you can't work on the Sabbath. So they're objecting to Jesus they're doing, actually performing obje- a miracle. Yeah. But then also to the to man, the man saying, carrying his mat. You can't carry your mat. Yep. Wow, there's a lot of tradition here. <laughs> a when, lot of when tradition gets in the way of that, it's terrible, isn't it? But we all do that. We've got to be so careful. Yes. We're seeing it so, <laughs> well, so much they would at have the preferred him not to pick up his mat and walk. Oh, anyway, it's it's just yeah. it just just shows you how twisted their um, what they think their relationship God yeah. with I, God I'm, should be. The current, as we record this, the current conversation in the Southern Baptist Convention about women in ministries come up this this week, and I'm seeing this tradition. Some of the responses I'm seeing from the SBC, it's like, can't you read John five? You're letting your tradition get in the way of something miracle here. Yes. I'm not going to say anything about that because I I have been reading a lot about that, but uh, this is not the time or place. But it's this, we can can blindly miss the point of God because of our tradition. But this, yes. And it, and they're so all over the Sabbath here. Yeah. Yet Jesus is coming to claim the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. So this is why we not only do we have this interesting healing point, but we're, we're being seated here to think about the Sabbath and yep. about the true rest and the true nature. Yep. Because then later on in verse 16, uh, the Jewish leaders begin harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. And Jesus replies, my father is always working and so am I. So when God rested on that day, he he rested that day, but then he hasn't really rested since. He has been trying to, you read the scriptures, you'll, you'll realize he's been trying to reach out to humanity ever yep, since. Always. And he hasn't stopped. Nope. And Jesus also goes on and says, I haven't stopped. When he goes to heaven, I go to prepare a place for you. He's busy. We know that he's an intercessory standing in the Messiah gap. Yes. And standing in the gap. So he's constantly working. Yep. But they don't get Thank this. You, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, they don't get this concept that God is still working for them because they haven't heard from God. There's been no prophet yep. for 400 years. Yep. Yeah, and they've so, somehow lost their way in their tradition and and you know missed the point of the law. Yes, and the Jewish leaders try so hard now to kill him. Try harder, actually. It says to find a way to kill him, for he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his Father, thereby, bom bom. Making himself equal, equal with, with God. God. Yep. Now, no matter how you read the Bible, how you read or you hear about Jesus, you hear him as the miracle worker, you hear him as making amazing claims about humanity and raising women up like the good the Samaritan woman we just read about and doing all these incredible things, presenting himself as a what a human should mm. be. You cannot get past the fact of what he says about himself. He equals himself yep. with God. Yep. So on one hand, you ca- you can call him an amazing miracle worker, but you cannot ignore the fact that all the rest of this chapter, yep. he is calling himself God. Yep. So what is he to you? Is he the miracle worker or is he who he says he is, the son of God? Because he spends a lot of time saying that yep. I am. I am the Messiah. I am healer. I am the true Sabbath. Yep. Yep. I think C.S. Lewis said something to the effect of, you can't just take him for no value. He's either Messiah, 
He, I think he says he's either Messiah, malevolent, or man, maniac, one of those three. So either he is who he says he is, or he's doing all he's doing for malevolent purposes. I don't think he uses that word, but or he's just a, a madman. You've got to make a decision. You're confronted with this Jesus. You have to decide which of those he is. You can't have a, a half-hearted attitude toward Jesus. He does not leave us with permission to do that. No, he doesn't. And if you if you continue, you've got to go on and read this. I tell you the truth, 24, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. This is hugely controversial. Anyone who doesn't honor the son is certainly not honoring the father. You can't ignore this. You have to really yeah. go and sit and read what he says about yes, himself. Yes, true. And Let it weigh on you. Yeah, I, I was sent... When uh, Pastor Rowan and I were talking about the last podcast we did with a lot of those funny sounds, I sent a message to him and I said, well, either this podcast lives or dies on this episode. On that episode, yeah. Well, your faith either lives, lives or, or dies, dies on, on who, what you say what, about Jesus. Yeah, and yep. also your revelation and understanding yep. about the glory of God Amen. lives or dies unless, by what you know of or what you choose to accept about Jesus Christ. That'll preach, Jeannie. Woo, yeah. That is so true. That's Hey, what's the point in having all this if we miss... The main point, which is Jesus. Yes. And this, he's going on, he's saying, this is God. He is God here. He's claiming that and that he is the glory of God. Yep. Anyone, he says, who listen to my message, you will be given human life. A true true <laughs> eternal life. Eternal life. Eternal life. I read two things at once then. Those who listen to the voice will live. The voice of God, the voice of the son of God. The father has life in himself and he's granted that same life giving power to his son. Life-giving power to his son also means creator of the world, all of the things in the world, all of the humans in it, all, and also all of our achievements. Like, yep. um, you know, we're not able to create big buildings just because we're like creatures. We're actually, it's the, we're reflecting, it's reflecting the glory the of creativity God. creativity nature of yes. God. Yes. Yeah. And you can read all of that in this. Yes, for sure. Yes. John wants to go out of his way to show you that Jesus is God, that Jesus yeah. is Yahweh, more than any other gospel writer. It's a big part of what he's trying to teach you. And he gives credit to God in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. Mm. You search the scriptures in verse 39 because you think they give you eternal life. I think he's probably thinking about Nico here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the scriptures point to me. This is massive, massive statement. Yep, Jesus, John's gospel is all about this. Yeah, it is. You cannot skip over this. No. No, no I think it's why people say start with John's gospel, because even though it's confusing, the main point of John's gospel is that you would encounter Jesus. And I actually think in the next chapter we're going to read, this is the seed that start that grows and turns people away from Christ. This is the conversation that people go, ah, uh, you know what? I'm here for the feeding of the yes. thousands. I'm here for the miracles, but the son of God stuff. This is all a bit no too thanks. much. Yeah, so let's go right. there. Chapter six. So in chapter six here, we've got Jesus is crossing over to the far side of Galilee on purpose. Yes. Well, he's going there. A huge crowd is following him. Mm. He's He's got this sort of fame. So they are aware of his gravitas or his importance. He's this important miracle yep. worker. And he's trying to avoid the crowd, right? So he goes over. 
Uh, but they follow him anyway and they get annoyed at him. Like, where is he? Where's he gone? Is that in this? <laughs> oh, that's sorry. That's ch- verse 22, actually. They, right. they argue, where, where did the miracle worker go? They're following him They're around. They're following him around because they want, they want food. But there's this big miracle that he does here, which I, I love this story as a child. Um, where can we bribe, buy bread to feed all these people that are around? And he's, oh, this is the first mention of Philip here. Okay. Being a sort yep. of significant player yep. as, yep. as a disciple. And it says in verse 6, Jesus was testing Philip yep. for he already knew what he was going to do. So we, he's testing Philip. He's testing us. Yep. Right? Yeah, yeah. He's, this is what I mean by this sense of John wants you to be thinking that Jesus is always goading us towards him. Yeah. I, I sense in John's gospel a, a degree of fun in Jesus, a degree of almost sarcastic poking poking at us, not in a – not in a sarcastic way to get us down, but he's, he's inviting us to come and relate to him. Yeah. And even the statement of Philip replies, oh, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. That's right. Yeah. It's kind of funny. It is kind yeah. of funny. I think you're supposed to see Jesus as fun. Yeah. <laughs> you really are. That's how, John, yeah. that's how John's remembering yeah. him. And in the moment, like he's living in the moment, he not only is about to do this big miracle, but he's appealing to Philip. Yes. He's connecting with this guy. Yes, absolutely. And the young boy who's here with five barley loaves in verse nine and two yep. fish. And Jesus, he 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 gives thanks to God. Yep. And then he distributes them to the to the people. And they have more than they enough. This is where we're learning God is his glory he's, is abundance. He's abundant. It's El Shaddai, yep. But then when the people saw them, they exclaimed, Surely this is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. So they wanted this, they know about this Messiah that's going to... They're looking for a military leader. They're thinking this guy can rally this crowd. He's doing miracles. They believe the Messiah would do miracles. This guy can rally a crowd. Let's get behind him and forcibly kick out the Romans. And because they were all following him. So he had the momentum there. People were believing in in his miracles. So cheeky Jesus Jesus (laughs) runs runs away. away. (laughs) Exactly. It's kind of weird. <laughs> he runs away. In, You'll see this a lot in John's the Gospel. The time, his time had not yet come, John says multiple times. And here's a wacky part. So he's gone to the hills by himself. But that evening, Jesus' disciples go to the shore to wait for him. But as it gets dark, he hadn't come back. They decide to get in the boat. Go back to and Capernaum. Go to Capernaum. <laughs> we might as well go so home like, to the house. Well, where's G- we don't, we're just going to leave him. He's yeah. gone by himself. He's probably so. gone for a walk somewhere. He'll, he'll show up. Yeah. <laughs> That's weird, right? Just to leave your leader there or your... Yeah, well, your leader, your rabbi. Yeah, it is probably. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't really leave your rabbi behind unless he's done this before. Yeah, I think that's probably Jesus would often, I think, spend time on his own. So he would say, "I'll meet you later on, or whatever." So we go. Well, we can't find Jesus. We'll go back home. Surely he'll come home when he's ready, because Capernaum's where they're spending their, where they're living during this time. So let's go back home and you know, imagine he didn't have d- days of email and phone and GPS. Well, best thing we do is go home because that's probably where he's going to come looking for us. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Three or four miles they row. So it's quite far. It is. This is on the... They've left him without a ride. They've left their leader without a ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Three or four miles when suddenly they see him walking on the water and they were terrified. Yeah. it's It sounds like a long way, but it's not. You can do the whole Sea of Galilee pretty quickly. You can yeah. drive around the whole thing in an hour from once all the way around. It's a lot of theme of water here. Yeah. Walking on the water. Yep. I don't see Zac Efron walking on the water. No. <laughs> each no, time see. no. Okay, go back to the last podcast. Yeah. Zac Efron Zac, appears, Zac, I don't know, randomly. He's getting a hard, yeah. a hard rap. Baal Zephron. Zephron. Yeah, Baal yeah. And they're terrified. They're seeing this glory. They're seeing this figure walking to them. They're terrified, as I would be. 
And Jesus says, don't be afraid in verse 20. I am here. I am. Yes, there's another I am, one of the multiple I am statements in John. And they were eager to let him in the boat. I would be too, I suppose. (laughs) And immediately they arrived at this destination. This is strange. This is time is irrelevant here. Time and distance is irrelevant. Suddenly they've appeared. This is the God of living in a different dimension. Yep. Squishing time, squishing distance, and suddenly they're at their destination and everything's okay. Yep. And the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the far shore (laughs) saw the disciples had taken the boat and they realized Jesus wasn't there. So then they take boats and they follow him. Yep. So he can't get away from this crowd that he's worried they're going to create, they're going to make him king. And instead of performing a miracle here, Jesus then tells them, he reminds them that he is the bread of life. He goes, he's riffing off Exodus, Exodus. the manner of life. That's it. Yeah. And then they get get these arguments. Jesus is like, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. Wow. So I fed you. I fixed you physically, but you're not able to see the spiritual moment in this. It's a miraculous sign. Miracles are always signs pointing to something bigger than the miracle itself. Yeah. And don't be concerned about your perishable things like food, he says, 27. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. I must admit, if I was there, I'm here for a free feed, right? Because he just fed me the day before. I'd be wanting more fishes yeah. and loaves. We, we, and yeah, this is a, we have to be very careful not to place, place judgment upon these people as though, oh, we wouldn't do that. The point of the story is we're supposed to put ourselves in those shoes and go, when are we like that? When do we become selfish and greedy and just want what we can get out of Jesus? Yeah. The first couple of times I read this, I was pretty much putting myself in the position of oh, that would never be me. I, but now every time I read it, I'm the bad guy in the story. That's a good way to read it. That's <laughs> yeah. what John wants you to do. He wants you to read it through that lens. I'm the person there going, give me the food. And then Jesus goes, hang on, hang on a minute. Think about eternal life. I would be quite annoyed. Well, I would be like, well, we want you to, we are, uh, no, they actually respond saying we want to perform we God's want you to work. Perform. We want to perform. What should we do? So they are seeking here. They are like God. He says, God, yeah. the father has given me the seal. Of That's approval. right. There's some searching here, but it's, it's warped. Yeah. And just then, like Nicodemus, just like the woman at the well, it's, there's a searching heart and it's warped. These stories are all about Jesus meeting us at our point and taking us to truth. And their response here, what should we do? Which is the traditional response. Yep. What should we do? What laws can we put yep. in place to get closer what to God? What do I need God to do to have a eternal life? Eternal life. Said. Yep. So what faith can I work in my life? But then Jesus' response here is the one that we should only ever listen to. Yep. He says, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he sent you. Yep. Believe. Believe. That's no matter it. who you are, this is you faith. can just believe. This is the point. Yep. Believe. But they're like, that's not enough. Nope. Show us a miraculous that we sign should believe in you. if you want us to believe in you. They've already seen miraculous signs, but they want more. Yep. They're hungry for the spectacle. Yep. Not hungry for the faith. Not hungry for the glory of God. Nope. The spectacle. Come on. Right? We're preaching now. Oh. <laughs> and then they answer with this, after all. <laughs> what can you do? They say to Jesus. After all, our ancestors, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. Moses, the scriptures say they say Moses gave them the bread from heaven to eat. So they're comparing him to Moses here. They're saying, look what Moses did for us. You what do better than you that. Do what can you us? do? Yep. And we talked about this. I we think did. in, in the we last did in the one. previous Exodus passages. And no. Jesus' response is, "I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. My Father did. Yeah, and I am that bread." 
I am that bread. Yep. Yes. You think the manna's important? That's nothing compared to what I am. Because that was food that would spoil. I won't spoil. Yeah. I don't spoil. I'm, I'm the bread of life. Whoever yep. comes to me will never be hungry again. Yep. These are extraordinary statements. Huge statements. Speaking of faith, speaking of yep. spiritual things again, remove trying to remove the mind from the physical realm. Into that spirit. Trying to get that blending of heaven and earth. Yep. Heaven and earth. Yeah. He is heaven on earth and they still can't see it. Yep. That's right. They miss it. Well, I miss it a lot too. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We should be thinking that, how are we missing this? And even if we miss it, because we are Christians and we've been given, as to say, given to God, I believe, other times we've talked about are we a gift to God? I kind of think we are. Mm-hmm. The scriptures say that we are, because that we are valued, that we are reflecting a representate. We are made in God's image, therefore we represent his yep. glory. Yep. And Jesus says, in 37, however, those the Father has given me will come to me and I will never reject them. Amen. And that's the will of God. I have come to do the will of God, which is to accept those people and I will never reject them, those who believe in me. This is pretty, this is again, <laughs> yeah, you have to, to read all this. starting to get a good portrait of what John is trying to show you about Jesus here. Yeah. Yeah. Have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. So you can read the miracle worker. You can read and the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus is asking you, who do you think I am? Mm. Will you accept me as the bread of life? Yep. This gospel reminds you of your physical yep. that asks you to see with eyes that don't see the physical. Yep. It's asking us to see beyond our tradition and the things we do and the motions that we go through. And look to the one who is behind those, that rep those motions, those traditions represent and find Jesus there. I think this this is a very different gospel, as we didn't say, but this is synoptic. This, this is not is the synoptic gospel. Radically different to the other. Radical others. different. Like this Radical. miracle of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospels. Feeding of the 5,000. Yeah. And he, you have, you do have to read it because he makes so many claims about himself. Yeah. So many claims that you just need to sit with one sentence and read it. For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. This we're all taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. That's another one. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes, anyone who believes, uh, as far as I can tell, when I read the Gospels, when I read the entire thing, it doesn't say anybody except that race. That's it. Anybody except that gender. Anybody except those people of who it, have that sexual orientation. Anybody. It says anybody. Anyone can who come. Believes. That's it. Anyone. It's an open invitation. Yeah. Think of that. Yep. This crazy guy claiming to be the son of God, representing his glory and his love, saying, Amen. Anyone come to me. Amen. Thank you for that. Anyone. I'm going to stop there because there's no greater statement. That, <laughs> that, that all can come. Anyone can come. Yep. Let me finish with these words. The end of John chapter 20, while we're there. Disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book, but I've written these down so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. That is a superb summary of the whole book and the stuff we've talked about in in these chapters today about John. Yeah. What are you going to believe, Pastor Owen? Believe I in the miracle believe worker? that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that I have life by believing in him. Amen.
Amen. Put that Amen. applause on. Put the applause on. All right. We'll we'll catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great week, everyone. Thanks See for you listening. Next time. Thanks, Jeannie.